they were, well, I was telling them about the, the work that we were doing, and they had this kind of like um, default blank slatist view, because that's the, the waters of modernity, and they just hadn't questioned it. And then as soon as you tell them a few facts, or you, know, you tell them that you can predict, um, let's say, educational attainment better from um, genetic data, right, you're doing the GWAS, than from, your, uh, from the father's income or you know, the, the parental SES. Everyday people can understand this, and they're awed by it often. You know, I think if people want diversity, that's great, right? I don't like it. I, I, I like. I, I'm a neurotic person. <laughs> I like low crime. I, I like homogeneity. I like predictability, and and those are things that I treasure and I value. Hi, hi! Welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today I'm speaking with Bo Weingard and Matt Archer, both at the same time, a bit of a special episode. They're both editors of Aporia magazine, an interesting new magazine that focuses on scientific topics, particularly those that have a bit of political controversy around them. You'll see what we mean as the podcast kicks off, but we discuss various uh, genetic technologies such as embryo selection or gene editing, we also get into a heated debate about immigration. We also discuss pronatalism, elite theory, conquest law, and the long-term maintenance of an organization such as Aporia. I'm sure this is something you'll all enjoy, and if you do, then the best way to help the show out is to let a friend know, either in person or online. Not only are you helping us, but you're also helping your friend find something interesting and informative. Without further ado, here's Bo Weingard and Matt Archer. I'll start off with a very original question, and you can answer this in sequence. Who is the smartest person you've ever met? <laughs> um, Bo, you go first. <laughs> I'm going to buy some time. Um, so I have... This is not the smartest. I don't like putting it that way, but the... I, I have a lot of respect for a lot of people's intelligence, including Emil Kierkegaard, um, Dave Geary, etc. But one of the best and most interesting conversations I've had with an intellectual was with Pascal Boyer, who's a cultural anthropologist. I think he's still at the Was Washington University in St. Louis. Um, I actually was interviewing there for grad school, and they allotted me an hour to sit in his office and talk to him. And I went, I don't know, I went like an hour and 40 minutes and finally they had to call him and tell him to boot me out of the office. <laughs> <laughs> so that was an engaging and just fascinating conversation. And although I, I think I probably disagree with Boye about many things, um, that was one of the more thrilling conversations I've had. Yeah, I'm going to go with Noam Chomsky. Uh, I met him briefly uh, when he was giving a lecture in Durham in the north of England. And it was one of his you know, stump lectures that he had given many times before. I'd seen the lecture on YouTube. I was just going there to shake his hand and get a signed copy of Manufacturing Consent. And I have to say that, um, yeah, I, I, I was very, very jittery as I approached him. There was some like, Spanish communist who really wanted to speak to him. So I, I barely got my words out. But um, yeah, even, I mean, what, he's 93, 94 now? And it's, it's, it's remarkable how cogent he is he seems you know he's probably lost about 30 iq points and he's still the smartest person in most <laughs> most rooms 
Really? Okay. So, so I think I grew up, I think I grew up, I'm a bit younger than the both of you. I think I grew up just past the era in which Chomsky, I don't want to say was taken seriously, but was taken as a kind of grand thinker, you know, mm-hmm. like manufacturing consent. Pe- people used to, or like people I know who are older than me, the kind of like IDW types, mm-hmm. really value and treasure manufacturing consent yes and it's sort of like it's sort of like with curtis yarvin we were talking about curtis yarvin a little bit before we started the show but it's it's kind of like these ideas have become there's two ways this can happen one way that this can happen is like with friedrich nietzsche where the ideas become obvious but you've just been rhetorically like browbeating people so hard that when the idea becomes obvious, you get all of the credit. And that's Nietzsche. And the other way for it to happen, and I think that's more common, is for it to become more evident and for people to just ignore you and say like, oh, sure. Like, okay, yeah, democracy is fake. What's new? Right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what's happened to Yarvin, uh, at least among most people. You know, I still respect Yarvin. I've had him on the show. And I think that's what's happened in my generation to Chomsky as well. But um, aside from that, the only real thing I know about Chomsky is that he's just like consistently wrong in exactly, he's consistently like the opposite direction of the truth when it comes to AI, when it comes to machine learning. (laughs) Yeah. And has just like not corrected has only doubled down despite basically all of his empirical claims being proven not only wrong, but kind of like directionally the opposite. Um, that's the only thing I know about him, unfortunately, or one of, or like very few, one of the very few things that I know about him. Matt and I, I think, both venerate Chomsky, but we often talk and we're, we're both, I think, a bit nonplussed by how dogmatic his worldview is in some ways, even though he's so brilliant. And I think like the same thing you said about, um, uh, AI you could apply to foreign policy like he has this very Manichaean foreign policy you can basically predict what Chomsky is going to say about something before he says it <laughs> which is I don't know m- maybe it shows that he's consistent but maybe it shows that he's uh, dogmatic I don't know he's often fond of trotting out the line that he hasn't really changed his beliefs since he was like ma- nine yeah. <laughs> yeah, since he wrote his first article about the Spanish Civil War when he was like 12 years old <laughs> which oh I mean, my that yeah. is hmm, maybe maybe i should in in order to keep my respect for him i should stop asking questions here <laughs> well you yeah, should read you but, should read his work though because he 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 was a very right. he's a very incisive thinker i i would agree with matt i share his reverence and i also met chomsky and i was also it was like one of the very few not times i've been nervous around like another academic yeah i, mm-hmm. I, I think you have to watch, for example, uh, his debate with Foucault. And also, I can't remember the name of the program, but there's a fascinating kind of you know, faux debate where he is talking about the Pentagon Papers and Daniel Ellsberg. And it's it's uh, a cross-examination. And he's being you know, cross-examined by a an intelligent guy. He might even be a lawyer. And Chomsky is just very, very quick to deliver these articulate well thought through responses to actually quite complex moral problems and you could say that's because he <laughs> is dogmatic in his worldview but they are you know sophisticated uh, positions about you know when it is and isn't right to uh, you know leak documents or 
you know, whatever the uh, moral case may be. So I think just watching that is is also, if you watch him with William Buckley, it is a quite uh, brilliant demonstration of what we've lost in terms of you know, just the quality mm-hmm. of TV. I'll take your word for it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I actually don't think that this is an ongoing debate I, I have with people, but I don't think the quality of media has actually declined. I think that people are just kind of, people are just coping, you know, like, like old people are kind of coping that we don't get the best quality product from basically major film studios, the stuff that they're used to. It's all the internet. Now the internet is the best generator of content and that content is actually just better. Um, but but it that's an me. argument, you know, that's maybe something for, for deep well, into better. the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the people who have heard of you, hopefully there are at least some people who have heard of you in my podcast. Well, probably uh, heard of you from uh, the Aporia magazine. Um, something that uh, I'm, a, I'm at least interested in. I don't know if you guys are interested in Aporia magazine. Uh, <laughs> wh- what is your, have you ever been a member have you member, ever been a member of uh, Aporia magazine? Okay, wh- what are we talking about here? What What's the question? Have Have we ever been a member? What, sure. what is Aporia magazine? Oh, what is Aporia magazine? Um, well, it started actually as my blog, uh, let's say, last year. And at some point around October... I started to, you know, I, I was writing a book at the time or a book proposal about uh, gifted children, how gifted children were systematically mistreated, uh, certainly in the Anglosphere and the West more generally. And as part of that project, I started interviewing people who were experts in intelligence. And yeah, I, I found myself in very interesting circles. And it became clear that there was, the way I describe it, is an opportunity for you know, arbitraging the truth uh, on certain controversial issues to do with things like you know, HBD, that's human biodiversity or human biological differences. Oh, cut it out. Um, yeah, yeah. What is HBD? Just, just in plain layman's terms. In, in plain layman's terms, it's this study of how humans differ biologically, genetically, but more specifically, you know, gene-environment interactions. So that could be you know, uh, differences between men and women, differences between... Um, uh, races, differences between classes. And it's kind of a slur that the left and perhaps more the woke left use. Uh, they think anybody interested, you, you can look, for example, on Rational Wiki, and you can find that you know, anybody associated with HBD is obviously you know, fascist adjacent, um, which probably speaks you know, to the potency of, um, of HBD, you know, its explanatory power. Um, so you can really see it as uh, coming out of the genetic revolution out of people like E.O. Wilson's work, you know, sociobiology. Um, that would be the lineage that I would. Right. I would, I would describe it as kind of both, not just the correct understanding of genetics, uh, both between individuals and between groups, but also the correct extrapolation of their consequences, um, uh, genetics and its consequences on society. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I guess this... HPD people are more willing to, you know, uh, say that the classic is ought distinction really doesn't apply, right? There are people who, as Bo has written, are left wing and progressive and will talk about the same issues, you know, same topics in HPD. But generally speaking, I think most people think that there's at least a common sense 
um, set of policies that follow from understanding human biological differences. For example, if it's true that there's at least a one standard deviation gap in intelligence between, uh, say, sub-Saharan Africans and Europeans, then you might want to think more carefully about, carefully about carefully about immigration policies, right? And there are also kind of progressive moral takes on that as well, because you don't want to necessarily brain drain the countries that have um, a smaller supply of people who could become elites. May I interject just to say that that gap is more like two standard deviations. The one no, standard I, I, I deviation was being, is... I was being okay. correct. <laughs> you were taking the high estimate. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the, the, the very politically correct take of the only one standard deviation. <laughs> um, that, yeah. I mean, I think we probably disagree to some degree on legal immigration, but but we'll see. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll get that's there. something also for the later later parts of the show. You mentioned you mentioned that you're starting a project or starting a book about how gifted children are mistreated. That's actually very interesting. Uh, say more about that. Yeah, well, I'm I'm not sure whether this book will ever see the light of day because Aboria has, you know, we've received funding and we're trying to onboard more writers. Uh, hopefully, we'll have more uh, full time editors joining us soon. So. I've I've started to kind of serialize the parts of the proposal that were already written, um, but they so say there are, there are two parts up on the website at the moment. The first is about a genius basic income, which would have been um, apart from the uh, you know say part two of the book, looking at normative prescriptions for how we could deal with uh, some of the weird policies that you see coming out of Australia and America, where gifted schools are shut down, and uh, yeah, there's no kind of veneration of the immense and unique talent that these uh, children have. Um, and then the other article was called A Tale of Two Teenagers, which was about um, a gifted student who I met when I was teaching in a, a private school in London, who had, a, I think, a registered IQ of about 148, um, quite aspie. And yeah, it was, it was just clear from the first day when he brought in a book, uh, massive tome, Plato's Collected Dialogues. And uh, it was very clear that this kid needed the same type of special help that you know someone with an IQ two standard deviations below the mean needed. Um, and that's in London at a school where you're paying, let's say in dollars, maybe $40,000 a year for the privilege. So it was clear upon reviewing the literature that all of these facts had been known for at least half a century, probably more, going back to Lewis Terman, uh, and the fact that there was no kind of popular treatment of how gifted kids are routinely discriminated against. Again, it's, it's well known in, li- in the literature. It's talked about how they need the specialized support. And there was a book in, uh, I think, the late 90s about uh, the, prob- the problem in America, uh, written by actually the wife, um, Ellen Winner, Winner, I think her name is, the wife of... Uh, um, who's the multiple intelligences guy, Howard Gardner. Gardner. Yeah. yeah, and uh, she had written this book and outlined many of the facts that haven't changed today, such as you know, uh, special education needs programs often get an order of magnitude more funding than gifted programs. And when gifted programs do pop up, they are uh, sometimes swiftly um, shut down in places like New York, um, especially if there are racial disparities, right? There aren't black kids who qualify for the uh, gifted school or gifted program. So it's clearly a hot button issue, especially in the Anglo world, but you see it everywhere. You know, there are some countries that have tried and succeeded more than others. You know, there are places like Hungary, which have better programs, but it's very, very hard. It's you're politically swimming uphill to <laughs> give preferential treatment to those who are already, um, 
going to do well in life. But I, I tried to bust that myth somewhat, right? That they were destined to do well from the start. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that it's... I, I mean, the kind of framing, I'm not sure if this is what you actually think, but but the impression that I get from, from that article, I do think I read it a while ago, I'm just looking at it again now, is that like things have kind of gotten worse for, you know, quote-unquote genius kids. Uh, and I just don't think that's true. You know, you, you see, I'm kind of involved in the Silicon Valley, you know, software venture capital scene. Uh, I've had Michael Gibson on the show. Do you, do you know Michael Gibson? He... Start. He runs the fifteen seventeen fund. This this fund that basically grew out of the Teal Fellowship and basically invests oh, okay. in high school dropouts or, or sorry, mm-hmm. not in high school dropouts, but kind of like high schoolers and kind of like first year university dropouts who are going to start companies. Yeah, it, it's just. I, I think people are too doomer on this issue. You know, I I do think that I do think that there is a kind of suspicion and a hostility towards very smart and very precocious kids but i think it's the best time to be alive if you're someone like that yeah i mean this is there there is a lot of truth to what you say uh what i would caution against is a a, a, an american-centric approach so in the uk you cannot open a school unless it's a private school right you cannot for example have what are called uh, academies which is essentially like a um you know, uh, a privately run state school. You know, it's this idea of, I guess, charter schools, charter schools would be the equivalent in the US. And those schools cannot select um, based on merit. Now, you can kind of get a, a, around that via proxy, you know, depending on the location that you put the school in, you're obviously going to have uh, certain people applying. Um, so it, it, there, there are specific issues in each country, and there are cultural things. You know, Australia has this desire to stamp down on people that put their head above the parapet you know they call it cutting down the tall poppies tall poppy syndrome um and this manifests in myriad ways right in policy in culture so in some ways yeah like in america you at least have this kind of uh, libertarian free enterprise spirit where you can set up these schools and you have you know it's a very rich country of course so you have people like uh, peter till who will fund these programs for and, and, and tell people you have to drop out of high school and i think he says you can't go to university if you accept the till scholarship um however I would also make sure that we kind of uh, uh, take a broader perspective. It's not just the genius kids, right? Because the people that qualify for that Till scholarship are the creme de la creme. It's also people that might just be you know, 120, 125 IQ, and you'll, there'll be what, one of those in every uh, British and American classroom. And I would say the general culture um, towards those kids, um, unless you're in a particularly good school, is... is um, nowhere near as good as it could be right those kids could do more and certainly in the uk where you you know unless they're at a grammar school or they find a way to getting a scholarship at a private school it's often very hard for them to maximize their potential and i i would also say that you know, the benefit of uh you know, gifted schools is not the right solution for everybody is that you just meet more people who are like yourself at an earlier stage um and you're not reliant on oh god you know i'm at this you know even like a crappy private school um and i've just got to wait until i get to imperial college london or oxbridge to, to i can meet people like me um it's quite a <laughs> demoralizing uh process to put a young teenager through and that that does happen you know from like 120 iq on on Right. On, on one hand, I should say that I really relate to this. I mean, this, this was somewhat my experience 
growing up as well. It was it was quite boring growing up. Uh, I mostly had to spend or or my family and uh, help me with this, but had to find basically had to find things to do. You know, I think worthwhile things to do. Uh, but at the same time. I do I do want to take this as a kind of microcosm and push back against. I think there are a lot of smart people on the internet who are basically doomers about this question who say that the kind of explicit anti-merit measures are, you know, at an all-time high. It's kind of like terrible. I think that, you know, this is obviously, you know, maybe maybe I'm not choosing the best here, but um, Dave Rubin had Eric Weinstein on his podcast and he was complaining, you know, like there's no room in society for like people who know math anymore. <laughs> and, and I find that um, very funny, uh, very funny because it's wrong. Um, where I see, I think that there's a distinction to be made here between the kind of explicit institutions and the implicit institutions. And the implicit institutions have actually gotten far more meritocratic. Um, mm-hmm. In part, that's because of an increase in kind of you know, libertarianism and of free markets. And, and yeah, that, that, that is uh, less so in the US. But we've seen, you know, we've seen more markets in India, for sure. We've seen more markets, you know, just across the world. Um, all of these untapped talent pools we've seen even in China, you know, and, and you can say, yeah, there's still heavy state regulation. There's basically arbitrary. There's no rule of law. You can have arbitrary crackdowns. Mm-hmm. But there are, you know, there, there are people who are printing money and making products that are actually useful. And I just look at this, you know, I, I think that in order to get a correct understanding of the real like struggle against egalitarianism and how egalitarianism is defeated in the end, I think that you have to understand, you know, like it's it's going to be through in history. It's always been through these kind of implicit institutions. It's always been through things like um, markets or things like just, just being much more perceptive, having greater communication technologies, the Internet, right, the printing mm-hmm. press. Uh, and less so and less so this kind of political fight. I worry that, you know, like people are, are going to say, you know, we just need to get the government to admit that there are, you know, there are individual differences or there's genetic differences, so on and so forth. And to me, this is a kind of misdirection of resources. Do do either of you guys disagree? I think like the premise of Aporia magazine is kind of that you disagree. So I think you should uh you, you should both answer. <laughs> What, you what are your can thoughts? Take a shot at. <laughs> so, first, first of all, I, I, do you I, actually disagree? If you if if you don't disagree, you don't have to. You know, you don't. Have I to. agreed with most of what you said, and I think the evidence is clear that the sorting mechanisms in society are actually more efficient than they were before. In fact, Charles Murray wrote about this in Coming Apart, for example. So. The IQ at elite universities in the United States even is actually higher than it was, say, in 1960, because they're better at sorting. I I think the problem is, so I do think the ideology matters, the the ideology that's promulgated by whatever you want to call it, educated elites, the regime, I don't care. I mean, you know, I don't want to make it sound too conspiratorial and too collected and unified, but there is an ideology that's anti- uh, meritocratic, and there's an ideology that's egalitarian, at least about race. I think that's the big thing, at least in the United States, is that much of this um, abhorrence of meritocracy or, or 
maybe that's too strong of a term, but much of this egalitarianism is motivated by a desire for racial equality. And I think that does matter because I think at minimum, it, I mean, affirmative action has massive consequences. They might not be that important for outcomes because you're right. There are all these other kinds of mechanisms, uh, sorting mechanisms, but, but they do, you know, you're talking about significant differences in doctor IQ. If you look by race, for example, well, that's, that matters. Also, it's just unfair. It's divisive. It's irritating to white people. Um, to Northeast Asians, especially. To, um, so I think the ideology does matter. And I think we should take it head on because a lot of people are capitulating in that, <laughs> in, that in that debate. They're afraid to take it on. They're afraid to say what is actually happening. And now, I mean, Aporia is it's a magazine. We're not like exactly diverting billions of dollars into this struggle. You know, <laughs> we're a couple of people who want to fight against this. And I think it's an important fight. Do I think everybody should do it? Of course not. Absolutely not. Yeah. And I would also say that the importance of uh, talking about these issues in a calm, uh, what would you say? deliberate way you know, not, not trying to yeah not not <laughs> trying to be strategic just being you know very so for example russell warren just came onto the podcast i think you know i tweeted out a video clip from that podcast and i think he exemplifies how you can talk about this very calmly and dispassionately without um you know descending into ad hominem and having to always do the throat clearing the moralizing saying now i'm not saying this um and the reason people feel like they have to do that is because you know, they are historically they've been under threat of well sometimes threats to their lives to their livelihoods people lose their jobs um and when we're not a magazine that's only going to talk about this issue in fact it's you know uh, the the race and the genetic stuff and the iq stuff is uh, currently a small part but we think it's an important part because it's a problem that's only going to become um more important to address with demographics and i think the longer that you ignore the truth the um the more negative repercussions you see okay um from a society that is de facto blank slatist um and when you have the republican party and mainstream conservatives pretending like it's you know um just family issues right it's just it's just culturally bad, bad policies and that's the value of someone like charles murray and of course you know for talking about that candidly you are um depersoned to some extent some extent don't want to overdo that because you know he was a major scholar at the aei um but it's worth noting worth asking whether um that person could um a person like that could have the same career now and i'm yeah it's opportunity costs it's all yeah. opportunity costs all the way down you know yes uh, I agree with you. Uh, sorry, sorry, Bill, go on. Well, I, I'm just going to add something, and this is, it's not entirely uh, tangential, but it's slightly tangential, but I think it's related. When I say it's hard to estimate the costs of these erroneous narratives, I, I give an example. Um, the riots after George Floyd was killed, uh, a lot of that resentment and bitterness in uh, the black population, which is also fueled by white progressives, no doubt, who you know contribute to this erroneous narrative. A, a lot of that resentment is, I think, motivated by 
an acceptance and an internalization of mendacities about human equality. Now, when I say human equality, I'm talking about literal, like physical, mental equality, not moral equality. That's a different topic altogether. No, those riots were incredibly costly. So I, I do think idea. I'm I, I'm not a Marxist. I think ideas matters matter, ideologies matter, and that they should be confronted head on. Right. So, so this is, I mean, on the topic of political strategy, this is something that I've told a lot of people. In pri- I think I've talked to Matt about this in private as well. Um, but there's, so let's start off with a kind of empirical observation, which is, I think this 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 paper recently Richard Hanania posted on Twitter. Um, it's not a paper by Richard Hanania, it's from quite a while ago. Uh, Prejudice is free, but discrimination has costs, right? And it documents... Um, I'm going to link it in the show below for the audience um, in the notes below. But it just documents repeated cases of essentially um, attempted racism uh, in free market economies. And in each of these cases, it just shows a complete and total failure to invert outcomes, even in Nazi Germany. You know, uh, this is one of the examples. I think this is a... uh, I'm trying to find the quote right now. Um, yeah. Um, even even in Nazi Germany, um, there were still kind of people throughout the Nazi hierarchy who were regularly shopping at Jewish stores, going to Jewish banks, right? Mm-hmm. The, economic, the economic wins did not, you know, d- did not change until very late, you know, for obvious reasons, you know, for obvious literal um, kind of physical persecution of Jews uh, did not change until the very late, um, you know, very late into Nazi rule. And uh, he, this paper just gives example after example. I think there are a total of like 20, 20-ish uh, of these um, that he's documented. And there are more throughout and the conclusion that you take is twofold, I think. The, the first conclusion is just that, you know, when there are population differences, racism is just very difficult to actually achieve, very difficult to actually um, influence outcomes in, in a direction like opposite of the actual differences. Mm-hmm. And the second implication is that, or, or the second observation that I think people didn't really pick up on as much or as, uh, not as much as I would like, is that almost always uh, racism is about an arbitrage in market power versus political power. That when there is more political power than market power, you will get racism. That That is literally the arbitrage that's there. And this reflects, I think, with a much more global view of racism. It's certainly the understanding of how racism works in Asia. Um, I think uh, Amy Chua has had a book on this. Um and I think that really, like, what you have to do if you are a kind of conservative politician in the States is um, not to respond with apologies, not to respond with hedging, but either to, to give this paper, to give more recent examples and say, you know, racism is the arbitrage between political power and market power. And let's see where that's actually coming from, right? You know, this is a, this is an article that I might publish um, on my own Substack that might be out by the time this podcast is released. But I do think it's like it's very clear and demonstrable that the political that is fundamentally 
a question of, you know, what is the political economy of America and particularly the, the, the primary system of uh, the Democratic Party that creates this, you know, huge demand for racism, for anti-white and anti-Asian racism in the form of affirmative action. And you can draw a straight line from the kind of di- from the difference between, you know, the political power and uh, and the economic power of, for example, black Americans and the manifestation of these policies. So, so like the, the, the big question here is, I think, like, do you think that such a strategy um, would a be politically successful and b you know better than the alternative, right? I hand over to my resident American. <laughs> you're <laughs> you're handing it over to me, and I'm not sure that I fully comprehend the question about the strategy. So let me just parse what you were saying. So racism, and by by racism at this point, what we mean is racism against whites and Asians. So perhaps affirmative action. This happens when there is a discrepancy between a group's political power and the group's economic power. So what you're saying, I think, and what Hanania was saying is that uh, black people have more political power and they're able to use that to coerce certain outcomes in the marketplace through political power, not through market power. Is that a correct summary? Yeah, I, I don't think it's just you know th- th- this is a this is a result that can be demonstrated solely using like intra Asian conflict. This is like this is something that I think like I re- I really want Westerners to understand is that like this is the default understanding of how racism works in Asia. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and uh, yeah, I'll also link Amy Chua's book. I think it's uh, World on Fire here. Yeah, um, but yeah. This is the default, like this, this is the default understanding among the majority of the world's population is that this is how racism works. Um, when you have one group that, you know, basically is doing very well economically and mm-hmm. you have one group who can, you know, either take it out through sure. um, the, the ruling power through the state or right. through, you know, like something much more, much less formal than that through essentially riots or through um, violence, whether it's state-sanctioned violence or it's just you know simply mm-hmm. anarchy and pogroms, this mm-hmm. is how racism works. And I just didn't realize, you know, for for the majority of my life, particularly before I got uh, had any interest in politics, for the majority of of my life, I just did not realize that you know Western Americans, you know, uh, especially like basically whites and blacks did not understand that this is, you know, like the default pattern of how racism works. Right. And I think that once you start, you know, like, like some people think that like genetic differences, that, that that's, you know, like the thing that you really need to kind of unravel. Um, that That's the kind of like bottom Jenga tile that you need to remove in order to topple this entire tower. I don't even think you need to be that ambitious. I, I think that you just need to get people to understand, you know, the same thing that everyone else around the world understands. Well, okay, so I so just as a no, I I I I find libertarianism odious. I, I'm happy to debate libertarians, but I I you're never going to li- get rid of government or political power. It's just an important part of having a decent society, in my view. So I think you have to confront the political power. Now I do agree with you. You're right. It's often it's successful groups 
are generally the groups, especially successful minority groups, by the way, right? And Schwab documents this. They, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's actually normally pretty hard for, you know, it's pretty rare that uh, a minority group is the politically dominant group. Um, right. So these politically, these like, you know, like say you look at Asians and for example, um, oh, for some reason, the idiot mean presidency, uh, uh, Uganda or something, right? They provoke a lot of bitterness and envy, and it's easy to scapegoat them, to harass them, to denigrate them, and then to even boot them out of your country. Um, and and yeah, they're they're mistreated, and that is that is how racism often works. I, I do, but I do think I'm just you know. I want to have a government and I want to have redistribution for various reasons. We can talk about that later. So inevitably, my political preferences would admit the legitimacy of political power and the legitimacy of some degree of redistribution. And therefore, you do have to talk about these differences. Now, what you're saying is, well, if you make it clear this is the usual pattern of racism... Yeah, but to make that clear, you have to point out to people that the groups are different. Because if they don't accept that, what they might say to you is, well, why are you saying one group is more successful? Why are they more successful? And if you don't have an answer for that, you know, underlying cognitive differences, self-discipline, self-control, et cetera, et cetera. If you don't have an answer for that, racism looks like a good answer. It, it fills that explanatory vacuum very well. So I still think ultimately you just have to, I, I guess my view is you still have to confront the the erroneous ideology. There's just no alternative to that. Yeah, there's also an addendum that's quite, impo- quite important here. And it's unfortunately kind of the bitter irony of the distribution, of the normal distribution, is that you probably have to be fairly right-shifted to actually understand the importance of it, or even understand the distribution itself. Um, so, I mean, this goes back to Charles Murray talking to Coleman Hughes on his podcast, and the debate was, you know, should we face reality? I.e., do you want to live in a society where, you know, the diluted form of this truth at, say, the you know, 10, 11 year old level is that the black kid may internalize the view that he is by nature by default um not as clever right and it's not even a case that you know they don't have the intellectual ability to understand right it might just be the fact that that's quite hard for the typical 10 11 year old of any race to understand and so i think that's quite an important debate and it shouldn't be um shouldn't be uh mocked simply because you know you're like you know the science must the, the truth must win through um you know these these we shouldn't pretend like there aren't obvious negative repercussions from uh making this the <laughs> the the uh the default norm of the land right it's just it's obviously going to empower um you know uh, ethno-nationalists and racists but the question is do we live in a system currently that's worse than that right it goes back to what charles murray says in the opening of uh, human diversity which is a much underread book um, and didn't sell anywhere near as uh, much as he hoped um, where he talks about you know, force positives force positives versus force negatives um, and charts all of the examples of people making very you know middle of the road statements like you know Larry Summers um, James Damore right and he thinks that we've tipped the balance to a society 
whereby we're now far more concerned about making these uh, errors that, what would you say, they kind of, um, yeah, they highlight the disparities between groups, whether that be, again, class, gender, or race, um, rather than, I guess, a more conservative approach, which simply says, you know, there are obvious differences. And actually, in some of these areas, like gender, for example, if you went about aggregating the effect sizes in a different way, you'd probably see that the differences are very large um, in some important, you know, socially salient salient respects. Um, and what 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 are the costs from living in the society that pretends that ah oh, well men and women are basically the same? Like even Jordan Peterson has said this, right? Oh, come on, at the average is basically the same. Caveating with you, know, if there's a small difference at the average, that can lead to massive differences at the extremes, which is why you have you know most violent crimin- criminals and uh, prisoners being men and most nurses being women. Um, but I think Bo and I both agree, and that's kind of uh, embedded into the aporia ethos that we have. We live in a in a society that um, I think has tipped the balance. Right? It's it's much worse to uh, have these kind of noble lies. Yeah, that's something that that's not a good place to land it. I think I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, right. What is the actual what is the actual costs for your beliefs? Right. Both kind of individual and societal. I mean, a, a good question related to that, I think, is um, Bo mentioned that he favors more redistribution and more kind of unified society. I, I think that we're seeing this come up as more of a debate on especially on the American right, but also, mm-hmm. you know, you have people like Oren Cass, Saurabh Amari, um, mm-hmm. people who are basically at least, you know, economically moderate, if not economically left. And I think that you, you guys have uh, in- interviewed a lot of interesting guests on those kind of interconservative tensions. You've had Oren McIntyre on, right? Well, what do you think the direction of... Um, what do you think the direction of conservatism is going to be uh, in on the economic axis? The, so I, I I'll say my part, my piece, and then Matt can comment because I, I I'm utterly fascinated by this topic. And so the pessimist in me thinks the conservative can win without alienating big business, and their um by using culture war issues. Now, I don't want to minimize them. I'm not somebody who thinks that the culture war is a distraction. I'm not a what's the matter with Kansas person, you know, the the famous Thomas Frank book. I think culture war issues do matter and they mean something to people. Nevertheless, I also care about economic, uh, I I don't want to use the term justice because I think there's legitimate debate here. And and just to be clear, I want to preface this by saying I'm a fan of markets. I think markets are awesome. They're a, a machine to create wealth that we've never seen before. I'm just a fan of some redistribution and a lot of rules. So I, I worry that what will happen is like a Ron DeSantis, for example. I think there's this space where you could move to the less left economically and it would be popular for conservatives aiming at that working class, white working class, but also the black working class, Hispanic working class. However, you would alienate a lot of people. 
economic growth clubs, you know, the Koch brother community, etc. And I think DeSantis and other people like him, they don't want to alienate those people because they get a lot of money from them. And as long as they can use the culture war issues, and as long as people are so horrified, as they probably should be by the Democratic Party, they're not going to clamor for the economic stuff. That's not going to put you ahead in the Republican primary, let's say. Now, Trump, you know, he he intimates um, some more progressive or maybe maybe I don't want to use the word progressive because it's easy to misinterpret some more leftist economic policies and, uh, you know, protecting the social safety net. And in fact, uh, he lambasted DeSantis for wanting to cut those things. But when he's actually in power, I mean, when you look at what happened during his four years, there was a lot of economic growth. I don't want to uh, disparage or diminish that. But there was also a huge tax cut that was incredibly complicated. And that would be my chief problem with it. I'm not necessarily opposed to some tax cuts, but when they're incredibly complicated and Byzantine and they actually just favor people who are clever or who can hire lawyers who are clever to get around some of them, I do have a problem with that. So I, I'm afraid that the economic like leftism will not catch on among conservatives, but I do think conservatives are in a unique position to go against a lot of corporate interest because there's such a distrust of corporations now because corporations have gone woke, right? Because I think corporations realize the group that we need to placate, that's the left, right? Because the left is always the biggest critic of corporations. So if we can placate them with these culture things, then that's great for us. So conservatives are now very alienated by that. You can see this with battles against Disney, uh, you know, the Bud Light. I, I was going to call it a kerfuffle, but it's not even a kerfuffle. It's a cataclysmic disaster. <laughs> um, and it just alienates people. And, and they're open to this anti-corporate, anti-big. I mean, Sohar Bamari's been calling himself an, a New Deal conservative, which I, I kind of like, by the way. So... I, I'm I'm excited about that. I, I like it. It's new in the conservative movement. It's something that I've always been attracted to. I'm I'm a very big like unions person. I understand their flaws and we could talk about them and I'm happy to debate that, but I, I still think they're by and large really important so for social stability and for giving workers meaning. So I, I'm excited about that, but I'm pretty pessimistic. So I, I just haven't seen anything that makes me think, think that that will ultimately triumph on the right in the United States. Yeah. So the question, Brian, was about the future of the conservative movement, right? Yeah. Maybe you can give the same answer for uh, for the Tories. For, for uh, Britain. Yeah. Well, yeah. this goes back to NatCon, of course, where where we first met, um, which did feel like the start of something. It's like the embryonic stage of something that we don't quite know what it is yet. Um, and I mean, just uh, perhaps I can do 30 seconds on that. Um, you could see that it had that power because there were establishment politicians who are quite opportunistic, but also uh, probably fervent believers in whatever this, you know, uh, being left on the economy, right on uh, culture, this kind of social social conservatism movement is. uh, We only have one party, one very minor party um, that represents that position. It's the SDP, the Social Democratic Party. Um, So I think they understand that the Tories will probably 
be the uh, the victims of a hefty defeat at the next election, and they're looking to see where the energy is. Um, but of course, those conferences are never about the speakers; they're about the coffee breaks and the you know the the drinks of an evening where people get to um, meet each other and realize that they've been you know swimming in. Uh, similar waters, and uh, that's yeah, it's a it's a networking event, right? It's a, just an excuse for networking. I think that's why it felt at least um, interesting. Um, as for you know my broader view, my broader uh, predictions, I'd be a fool to make any, but I would say that you know the European perspective is very different from the British perspective, right? Mainland Europe, and that's very different even from the US perspective. That's for a variety of reasons, of course, basic stuff like electoral systems and you know the amount of money that you have in politics. But I'm um, on the whole much more Marxist than Bo in my kind of uh, prediction of uh, what will happen. Like my understanding of history, I think it's these things are on rails much more than we realize. And we only, um, we only understand that looking back. So I think we're kind of at a bottleneck um, technologi- technologically speaking, right? In the next 10 years, you're going to see huge advancements, I imagine, in things like AI and assistive reproductive technology like embryo selection and and IVG. And, you know, there are people like Malcolm and Simone Collins who say, look, you know, leftists, uh, environmentalists, if they want these views, these left-wing liberal center, you know, middle-of-the-road views to be represented, they need to have kids because political ideology is like 50 to 60% heritable, like most things. And if they don't have kids, we're going to be braced for a much more authoritarian um, society in 50 years. This is kind of like uh, Edward Dutton's view. Um, he's written about this in uh, his book a few years ago, The Past is a Future Country. Um, I'm not so sure, right? Because I, again, going back to this Marxist um, historical materialist understanding of like, you know, technology is one of the key drivers of history. Um, yeah, sure. There'll be perhaps more conservative uh, people, you know, people with more conservative predispositions because of their genetics around in 30, 40 years. You know, the woke often, you know, they're not even having kids, they're removing themselves from the gene pool. Um, however, do we really think that there aren't, you know, technologies that um, will alter or even, um, you know, uh, what, what would you say, kind of uh, attenuate? conservative predispositions you know for example the pill you know i'm sure there were plenty of people that were kind of you know genetically lent conservative and then the pill comes along and what does that say you know women you no longer have to worry about um you know controlling your reproductive cycle i mean it's just an incredibly powerful technology you know the washing machine is another you know fa- favorite example of economists in terms of how much uh, household labor um it saves and i think we're about to see perhaps the most uh, incredible technology so far which is the ability to give your kids you know five IQ points, you know, through embryo selection at the start. Uh, and then with IVG, it might be 20, 25, 30 IQ points. Um, and there might be a 10-year lag between the elites having that technology and everybody else getting it, maybe through some type of uh, subsidized system, you know, at the national level. Um, how do people respond to that Gattaca uh, environment uh, with, you know, uh, AI being a probably a close uh, contender for disruptive technologies of the next two decades, um, I'm not convinced that they're just going to default into like a, an authoritarian uh, conservative framework. Um, but I also I don't know if this is contradictory. I also do think that we are at an important bottleneck right in this decade to make sure that that technology. I don't think you can regulate it, but to make sure that it is um, you know as open access as it can be, uh, because the last thing you want is uh, China taking the lead. Um, or any authoritarian nation taking the lead and you know, creating the yeah, I agree with super you. soldiers What's of the future. Your, yeah. 
given that, what's your what's your stance on Rishi? Should, should Rishi? Are you a Rishi stan? Uh, no, I mean it's just totally vacuous. I think you know, these politicians are you know the the heirs to Blair, as David Cameron said. Uh, they are basically down the line. Kind of everyone hates the neoliberals, so I'm just going to use that blanket term <laughs> neoliberal. Neo, neo but um, Rishi posts accelerationism <laughs> on his main Twitter account. One of my friends said that uh, you could basically replace Rishi Sunak with a Bloomberg terminal, and you wouldn't lose much. Right? And you, you kind of saw this when Liz Truss was. I, I think that this is just. Uh, sorry, go on. Yeah, you you saw this when Liz Trust was uh, Liz Trust was ousted by um, not just the politicians, but by the markets essentially. You know, um, I mean, it, it's contested as to what exactly happened there behind closed doors, and I'm I'm sure we'll find out in ten to twenty years when the memoirs and the uh, you know all of the um, the gossip comes out. But um, yeah, the, like the Br- British politics is a good example. We've got Spanish elections this month. Uh, we'll have French elections soon. Um, so th- there's lots happening on the continent. And Britain is a great example of where there is a considerable amount of energy and positioning within the Conservative Party to recognise that, yeah, Rishi Sunak is probably like you know, a caretaker manager, right? And what comes next is, is the oh my goodness. important question. I, I am so... No, 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 no. <laughs> I am a very big Rishi stan, and here is why. You know, I posted, I posted this kind of, you know, I'll, I'll do this every once in a while. I'll be kind of sarcastically posting, and then I'll, and then I'll think about it for a second and think, wait, this is actually what I, what I actually think about politics. I, I was posting the other day that you know, the more online a politician is, the better. You know, like. Blake Masters, he really stands up for like the terminally online, you know, the people on Twitter, uh, the denizens of Twitter. Blake Masters really stands up for. And I put together this collage of like, there's this like Democrat who's like an EA. There's like, you know, Blake Masters, JD Vance, of course. There's, uh, there's Rishi. There's like, um, the president of, uh, the president of Palo, who's been on Balaji Srinivasan's podcast, you know, the, the, this collage of people who basically represents, you know, people who post blogs online, uh, essentially, and post on Twitter. And Rishi is one of them. Like, like he, he, he shilled Mark Andreessen's Substack. And you might, you might think to yourself, like, this doesn't matter, you know. This doesn't, you know, at the end of the day, it's signaling. At the end of the day, it's politics. But I don't think that that's true. I think that if people are, like, genuinely tuned into these online communities, if, if they're kind of downstream of them in a way, even if it's only lightly downstream, I think that that's very important. And, and you know, like, someone like Rishi is going to be more likely to read Aporia. You know, they're going to be more more likely to read, you know, basically anything that is likely to go viral on these Twitter circles, and he's he's already doing partnerships with kind of AI companies with DeepMind. Um, I think that he's an accelerationist. I think that he's bringing basically the technology. You know, I think that Britain will be better off with Rishi than with you know than with the alternative. That that may well be the case, but it's it's almost certainly not going to happen. Um, yeah, so. yeah. I, I you know I'm not optimistic about like his election chances. That that's not what I mean. But I mean, if he wins. If he wins, I think that um, I'm actually I'll, I'll actually be quite optimistic on Britain. Yeah, I, I guess the the standard reply is you know the you, you could have I, I guess to an extent you saw this with Trump in the US you could have someone who swims against the tide but if you have you know, the entire almost the entire um, you know, the entirety of the liberal establishment 
pushing back. Uh, you know, it's, it's the civil service. Who are the people that populate these institutions? Uh, they're mm-hmm. liberal left wing um, humanities graduates from. But that's just not true in this circumstance. He he established his own kind of AI commission, right? He he is essentially making sure that if new legislation is passed, it will actually be accelerationist legislation. I think that's maybe because people, you know, th- those humanities graduates don't really understand that stuff. They don't really know what's going on. Like for example, I've seen that Rishi is very interested in you know Bitcoin and crypto, and I'm all for that. That's exciting and making the UK a yeah, and Cambridge in the UK, a kind of uh, you know, scientific hub. There's, you know, UK is one of the best countries, maybe second only to America in terms of certain uh, biotech uh, developments, you know, Germany up there as well. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. But as soon as it gets on to mildly contentious and then very contentious issues, uh, you, you're, you are um, rendered immobile. So for example, his big thing at the moment is standing in front of a podium that says, stop the boats from Calais. Um and you have members of the government tweeting about you know, uh, these secret videos that are being taken by pupils confronting their teachers in state schools about uh, the fact that there are only two genders. And the you know, government ministers like um, Patel, uh, I actually can't remember if she's still in government, former ministers, if so, um, saying, oh, this is awful. And you know, people like Douglas Murray, who's not really that much of a conservative, you know, just saying, oh, yeah, it, it is awful. You realize that you've been in power <laughs> for nearly two decades. Um, you've done nothing about it. You've created the conditions, the fertile, condition, fertile conditions for this stuff to unfold, and it's only exacerbated under your regime. So yeah, like I agree with you. There are certain tidbits which are exciting because they're essentially you know, just kind of a, a libertarian's wet dream in uh, you know, like the crypto stuff, the AI, AI stuff. Um, that's great. But the the major issues, the ones that people care about, you just can't get them past. Might, might I? I'll just add that so the online stuff, the being terminally online or whatever. My, my concern with that with these politicians, and I think the examples you adduced illustrate this, which is it leads to a lot of performative behavior and not a lot of policy production. So like Josh Hawley's a good example of this. I mean, he has a lot of interesting beliefs sort of that I, that I share or that I'm at least sympathetic to, but a lot of his behavior devolves into this idiotic tribalism. That's just more likely to alienate potential people than to convert them. And J.D. Vance, perhaps the same way, although he's worked, he's done some bipartisan stuff. So, you know, Blake Masters didn't win. <laughs> so, like, you have to win if you want to, you know, work in the policy sphere. And I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about this with uh, the U.S. Congress. I don't know what it's like in, in Britain, but these people, they, they no longer uh, use their funds to hire staff that help them write policies. They get PR people and all they want to do is get on Fox and make a few comments where they're blistering their tribal foe <laughs> so they can go viral and get some donations and voters on Twitter. That, that's the dynamic I really worry about because my chief concern, and we've been talking about AI and genetic technology a bit, my chief concern is to have meaningful jobs for people. It's not even really redistribution, only insofar as that's linked to like meaning. Like, I think people need jobs. They need to feel productive to communities. And I'm 
I'm terrified of what AI will do and the, and the way that it will vitiate meaning. And it will, I, I mean, you look at the American labor force, you look at the male uh, labor force participation rate, and it's really low. And it's probably going to decline more. I mean, I could be wrong about that. If I am, I'm, I'll be happy. But those are a lot of people who are suffering from ennui and sitting around smoking ganj, you know, playing games, doing whatever, trying to numb their meaningless existence. And, and that terrifies me. So to get things done, you have to move from Twitter and making this funny takedown of AOC or whatever and actually pass something. <laughs> And that's what I would like to see happen. So that's my objection to, I mean, I'm not opposed to people reading these things, of course, but my objection to the, the being too online is that you end up just engaging in a, I don't know, a faux drama that doesn't actually help anybody. Yeah, I mean... I think like Richard Hanania's take on this is that like, and, and I and I agree with him, is that like oh, that set of behaviors, there, there's like actually online behavior, which is like the EA Rishi stuff. And then there's like the stuff that's associated with being online and is actually just more true about cable television, which is, I think, like the Trump stuff, which is, I think, like the QAnon stuff. I think that's actually like he has this graph of kind of um, where... I think Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, donations uh, generally came from, right? And it's mostly, you know, it's mostly older people watching cable television. Right, um, right. Fox News or something, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly, mm. yeah. Um, but but I do think the underlying kind of, like, ideological critique there is correct, right? I, I do think that, you know, there, there's a sort of unseriousness around i should i should be fair about this it's not just the republicans i like to dunk on the republicans being unserious but i think there's a kind of general unseriousness um around policy i think i still disagree i think like rishi is actually serious um maybe we don't disagree on that but um yeah i I do i do look at the american scene you know i do look at you know this is kind of my personal life now this is kind of like my my personal life is trying to get them to take ai policy seriously um mostly on a defensive mostly on a defensive posture at this point but Mm -hmm. but certainly you know if the next president is trump or desantis on a more um on a more kind of uh visionary approach let's say um but yeah i agree with you on the underlying point and i think like the a very good question. The, the reason why I steered it in this direction on the kind of future of conservatism is that I think the questions that you guys are asking at Aporia are actually very important to this, right? The, the question of how much do people value culture? How much are people, um, you know, willing to take these uh, bitter truths seriously? There's a certain integration. There's basically like four, four ways to, to, there's four paths um, to go in terms of how people predict this will play out. So one of them, and I've been seeing, you know, there's been a Richard Hanania article recently that I think you guys have published uh, two replies to, or maybe just one reply to Um, his article. I think like diversity is, is our, is our strength. Immigration decreases social trust and that's good. Yeah. Or something like that. I think the wording on the subtitle might not be right, but that's basically the point. So, so that's one one path, right? Um, immigration or kind of being basically, um, you know, 
being more accurate when it comes to group differences, that that reduces trust and that it's good, reduces trust and it's bad, increases trust and that's good, increases trust and that's bad. So like, which which one of those four <laughs> paths do you think is uh, uh, wow. is the real one? Um, you're asking, you're asking a lot of questions which require prognostication, which I am very bad at, but I will comment on that just to say I have, uh, just as an idea, I, I find that idea so odious that, you know what we need to do? We need to have more diversity so people will trust each other less so we can just let markets grip and rip even more. <laughs> it's a very popular, well, maybe it's not a very it, popular. It is not a popular. It, it, it's I've a seen the car, you know, it's the least popular quadrant. Okay, f- fair enough. But there are people like at Cato who make this argument, right? And and I've, I've uh, I have, I won't call them friends, but acquaintances with whom I will talk who, who have these ideas. And it's, it's a fun debate, but I, I find it abhorrent. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the world that I would like to inhabit. So my goal would be, instead of prognosticating, I'll tell you what my goal will be because I, I, I'm uh, horribly pessimistic about the future. So <laughs> my prognostic, oh my, yeah. yeah, my, I, I have, you know, gloomy prognostications, but my goal would be to minimize diversity as much as possible. Uh, Now, let me be clear about that. I mean, through whom humane means, I mean, slow down immigration, et cetera. I don't mean kick people out or whatever. And I would like to increase social trust. I think, look, if you live in a community that has high social trust, it's great. I live in one that's pretty homogenous and it has high social trust. There are things you can do in those communities that you can't do in other communities that I really enjoy. You know, if you drop your wallet, it winds up somewhere and you can get it. You can invest in public things and people don't break them. Like there, there's like an elaborate Christmas display that you could easily just steal the stuff from, right? And in a lot of communities, it would just be stolen. Nobody steals it here. There's literally a free, there's a chessboard in the park here. And people just put it back when they're done playing chess. <laughs> These are things that don't happen in environments with low trust because people are like, why would I invest? And it's kind of rational, right? It's like, why would I invest in the public good when nobody else is going to honor that? Um, so I would I would like to move toward a quadrant that you didn't give, which is shrinking diversity, although that will never happen. I understand that. And I know what the demographic projections look like because I've written about this and I very much worry about it. But let's say this then. Honesty about group differences, which will allow people to understand and accept more these disparate outcomes, which will lead to slightly higher trust. That would be my preference. Yeah, I think I would echo that. Um, in terms of the demographics, I mean, if you look at the high-end migration scenario for countries like Sweden, you see something like half um, the country being uh, non-ethnic Swedes, about 25 to 30% uh, being Muslim by, I think, the year 20. 20- 50. So Sweden is probably the worst country in Europe when it comes to um, that, that that level of transformation, uh, closely followed by countries like Austria, Germany, France, the UK. Um, however, I am convinced that, again, you will see 
we've seen it already this summer. There have been stabbings by um, migrants in the UK and in France, in uh, Annecy. Um, I think there is a chance that one country might, instead of going populist, uh, decide to elect a leader who's competent, uh, kind of like a Dominic Cummings technocrat. Um, and that's obviously right, for, more... For the audience, explain who that is. Yeah, Dominic <laughs> I Cummings don't think was, most of my yeah. audience knows who Dominic Cummings is. Okay, so going back to the Rishi conversation, you know, your, your audience would uh, do well to look Cummings up because he really was uh, the technocrat personified. Um, uh, he, he was a special advisor to uh, Boris Johnson. And you know, famously put out a job advert saying, you know, only w- weirdos, I think, <laughs> need apply. Um, actually tried to hire someone called Andrew Sabitsky, um, who was then swiftly, I think, fired or maybe didn't even get the, the job in the end. I forget how the the timeline went uh, because of some post uh, which showed uh, a positive opinion of eugenics, you know, type of uh, um, negative eugenics that Galton uh, mainly endorsed. So not sterilizing people. But um, you know, the the you know, mate choice, for example, um, right? The, voluntary, voluntary, yeah. you know, uncoerced. Yeah, yeah like embryo the, the liberal version of the this. liberal, like lowercase a liberal version of this. Um, and so sure. yeah, that's that's the type of stuff that uh, Cummings was reading and trying to you know massive reform of the civil service. Um, so I I I don't think that it's all doom and gloom. Um, if you have some big tipping points, like if you had another nine eleven. Right. What did what did nine eleven usher in? You know, the Patriot Act, more government surveillance and centralization. But if you had the uh, you know a, a nine eleven style, and you could say, okay, well that's related to um, you know, uh, immigration in some way, Muslims or whatever. But I, I don't think it's that clear cut. I'm talking about you know the level of uh, terrorist atrocities that we saw probably what from 2014, 2015 onwards for a few years in Europe, in Barcelona, in France, you know, in Marseille. Uh, the truck plowing through people. I think it's happened in Barcelona, the Charlie Hebdo attacks. If that were to happen again, um, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that there wouldn't be some type of Orban-like politician. Right? He, he's one example who's tried to you know, literally build build the gates up and say, okay, okay no more. And for that, he, you know, Hungary is a pariah state of the EU and they, you know, they don't get certain EU funding. But there was a great prediction I saw on Twitter yesterday from, I think, actually a relatively free market guy. I forget his name now, but a British think tanker who said that he thinks, it's a very wild prediction, but he thinks that anybody who wants to join rejoin the EU in, say, I think his time horizon was something like 20 to 30 years, will actually be considered very right wing. <laughs> And it will be the it will mm. be the opposite, right? Because it will be the that the EU will at some stage have to realize the again the truth, right? The the the, the consequences of these group differences uh, playing out, and so the only people that want to um, rejoin that project will be right wingers, because the EU will t- have to take on a um, you know a decisively anti migrant um, stance. That oh, is so, so like the EU will actually be like stricter than Britain on immigration. Right. right, they'll be forced into that position. Now, I think he's. Um, I think it was Nick Bowles. You can I, I, we can put it in the show notes. This uh, g- this funny tweet thread, and it's an out there prediction, but it does kind of fold into what I'm talking about, which is maybe instead of a populist like you see in you know, countries like Spain, for example, the you know, Vox Party, which you know in or like the AfD in Germany, these parties are called far right on Wikipedia and far right by the BBC. But if you actually mm-hmm. read their manifesto, right, you just get it translated into English. Um, it's very, by the standards of the 70s or the 80s, um, 
it's it's there's nothing really yeah immigration restrictionism you know like right yeah people in my audience don't they they know what's up they they know that you know far right is a propaganda term um yeah it's pretty funny i think like um david rosado or it might have been someone he's someone who posts these kind of like word word frequency charts did one of far right and it's like I don't know. I don't even think like a, a liberal person, like a smart liberal person. I don't think like Ezra Klein genuinely believes that that reflects like the actual increase, that, that there's actually been like a thousand fold increase in, in, in the presence <laughs> of the far right, as opposed to, you know, that that that's representative by the well, right, especially in chart like that. You know, you can listen to I do this for fun. Sometimes when I'm eating, I'll listen to a speech from like 1992 Bill Clinton. <laughs> And yeah, yeah, exactly. Like if you if you gave that talk now as a Republican, it would be shocking, right? I mean, like, so this is the thing: we've moved so far that a Bill Clinton speech from 1992 would be considered "quote unquote" far right. It's also sad. I mean, just thinking about, I, I'm I'm happy about Matt's somewhat Pollyannish predictions for, for, for Britain and for maybe for the European union, or maybe you're just saying this other person made this and it's possible in the United States. We did not heed that wisdom. (laughs) And what's perhaps sad is in the United States, right? Is this is the problem with conservatism in the United States is it's been complicit in increasing immigration across uh you know if you look from the 65 i'm for, i'm drawing a blank on the name of the act yeah nixon bush one yeah um, look yeah. at like look very at, pro legal immigration yeah reagan sure. i mean he did do the immigration reform thing but they didn't enforce it so you just ended up getting uh enormous amounts of illegal immigration um so you know that's set and it, i mean it makes sense right because Businesses love having a lot of cheap labor. Of course they do, right? And actually what's interesting is um, it used to be unions that opposed this, obviously because they were promoting the, um, the, the interests of their workers. So I remember going to a Ralph Nader talk. I, if you're listeners, I hope they, they know who Ralph Nader is, but they can look him up. And there were, this was at Michigan State campus, and the, there were a lot of protesters. And I was like, are these like conservative protesters? And no, they were protesting because they were open borders advocates, and Nader opposed them because he said, you're going to kill workers in the United States. <laughs> and and like, Bernie said the same type yes, of thing. Yes, Bernie right? called it a Koch brothers conspiracy in an interview with Klein before, of course, like re, you know, when he rose yeah this like is 16 from the 20, ashes yeah. of his former self and he became more woke in 2020 <laughs> yeah so this and yeah it is it's right it's 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 mendacious to call it far right to oppose immigration like you know and we can i don't know if we get into any like demographic concerns or whatever but i also think it's appalling to uh, call demographic concerns racist. Like if you want to maintain demographic majority in your country, that's not racist. That's just normal, healthy behavior. Now we can talk about it, of course, and some people can oppose it, but it's weird that you have this incredible double standard in which if you praise and extol the virtues of diversity, which is a demographic concern, mainly it means having fewer white people, that's lauded. That's awesome. 
But if you want more white people, people, more homogeneity, that's, you know, ridiculed, assailed, you're called all kinds of names. I, I, I find that double standard execrable. I think it's so toxic to discourse and to honesty about these topics. Yeah, and in the UK, that's particularly toxic because we are literally ruled at the moment, right, by a Hindu. Now, Hindus right. are very well assimilated into the UK, and you can look at the, um, I'll use the PC term, you know, people of colour, the, num- the number of uh, POCs in, in on the front bench. And, yeah, weirdly, the Conservative Party has been on the front lines of uh, that level of representation. You know, so female prime ministers, of course, um, mm-hmm. Thatcher, Truss, um, and... Um, uh, Theresa May, um, and yeah, many ministers, front, front bench ministers um, from immigrant backgrounds. So, I mean, of course, that's that's great uh, at one level, but then you know, from a, just a kind of like basic understanding of uh, group differences and evolutionary biology, evolutionary theory, um, it's probably quite hard to, if you come from that background, to see some of the things that you know, uh, Bo is pointing out, um, you know, why why would it be a concern? And you literally see this in some of the you know, engagements that these politicians, again conservative politicians, have with people that would be considered you know fringe far right, like Nigel Farage, who almost single handedly is responsible for the, uh, the you know the Brexit uh, vote and the campaign. He's been working on this for for, for decades, and when he tweeted out the results of the latest census, we do a census in the UK every 10 years, and I think it was found that London, Manchester, Birmingham, and maybe Nottingham, I think it might just be the first three, uh, were now had now significantly declined in their white population, so much so that I think they were um, below 50%. And he, he just pointed this out in a tweet. Um, the Telegraph uh, wrote this up, one of the few papers of record to do so. And Sajid Javid, who I think was minister at the time, just retweeted him saying, so what? <laughs> and you know, that that's, I think, <laughs> a very um, a very telling tweet, right? Because so, so he's kind of... I'm sorry, I'm interrupting, but I must just really quickly for this, because that's better than what you get here, where I'll give you an example. Stephen Colbert told his audience about the survey, uh, the, the suggestion, the demographic projection that whites would be the minority by about 2045 to thunderous applause yeah, from jubilation. the audience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. there's this like unbridled celebration for the fact. And it's like, it, it's just, it's totally bizarre to me that like, l- would anybody think about this? Like if, if we were looking objectively at a country, say Japan, would we be like, you know what Japanese people would really celebrate if their country became minority Japanese? Like, that would be something they should be In a very about. short space of time. Right, do you very, know what the worst version of this is? No. Uh, I, ha- have you guys ever looked in uh, in the Collins' mentions? You know, Simone and Malcolm Collins, they've been on both of our podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever looked at their mentions? Like, their entire thing is like, you know, we should save the Koreans. You know, there should be a non-zero number of Koreans in the world. Yeah. Um, and, and, of course, they use that example because the Korean uh, TFR, the, the total yeah, fertility. Yeah. They're going is, extinct. Uh, particularly cool. right. low. Right. Um, but, yeah, yeah, like... And even that is met with, you know, but but I agree with you. Like, I, I agree with you. The kind of 
you know, Oren McIntyre calls us the celebration parallax, right? You have to be, yes. you know, you, you can mention the demographic change only if you're, yes. like, enthusiastic <laughs> about it. But if right. you mention the exact same statistic. What, what does he call it? You know, celebration the, the, parallax? The celebration parallax. I used to know? call it the demographic yeah. superposition theory. Where <laughs> yeah, my, yeah, yeah. But, yes, that, I like that because you're right. It's like these people pretend it's not a demographic preference to want diversity. But, yes, it is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's yeah, also yeah. a very. Like, like, go ahead. I was just going to say, Brian. There's also a very important caveat here that even people like Jared Taylor, right, who are considered totally you know persona non grata, although for, for the audience, who's Jared Taylor? Jared, Jared Taylor is probably the most uh, articulate and well-known representative of, uh, I guess, what you would call it the ethno-nationalist position um, in 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 the United States, right? So he would be in favor yeah, of some, and, and not just you know not not just saying you know like true true statistics, but mm-hmm. but like explicit you know Advocacy. taking taking the implications very far and yeah. he's 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 probably you know libertarian in the sense that i'm not sure he would be you know at all in favor of forcing people you know at, at gunpoint on, onto boats but he probably would be in favor um still of paying people to quote unquote go home i realize that's a problematic phrase because you know if you've been born here blah 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 but that's the type of figure he is however what i find interesting now, I don't agree with that view. I think it's even if you agree with, agreed with it, I think it would be a silly thing to try and promote. You might need one or two people doing that in order to have a healthy debate. Um, but it kind of, as Richard Hananier pointed out on Twitter, I think earlier this week or last week, that that ethno nationalist view does kind of require quite a lot of coercion because it's not just it's just where most people you know the American the modal American voter just isn't anywhere near. Yeah, there. in America, it requires a lot of con- uh, yes. coercion. But the the um, interesting thing I just wanted to point out is that often it's those people who really are. I, I think you can quite happily concede that these people are the far right. Um, they actually have the utmost respect. Often the more articulate people, not the skinheads, for actual diversity like the reason that people like jared taylor like he speaks fluent japanese and, and french the reason he uh i think about part of the reason he espouses um these ethno uh nationalist or ethnocentrist views whatever you want to call them is because he thinks that it's a good thing that japan exists right he wouldn't want right, to see right, japan right. not be a, a thing and um that is obviously what's happened to many western countries or will happen by the end of the century if my <laughs> my my leader doesn't come along and say uh, this far and no further yeah, yeah, there it, was it's that. very funny. Sorry, oh, I'm go sorry, on. I'm speaking over you, but that 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 now I'm I, I'm using this name, but I, I'm not that familiar with this thought. But isn't the the French philosopher Renault the "You will not replace us"? But like, you know, obviously that slogan has been denigrated and used as an example of you know like the uh, perniciousness of white nationalism, but his argument was more like we need to preserve this diversity and allow these people to have their own unique identities. And yeah, I mean, it really is more that the so-called pro-diversity side is actually calling for a sort of like, you know, a, a, melange. <laughs> like, yeah, melange that's gradually just boils into one insipid dish. Yeah, yeah, and you can take the ideological diversity angle of this as well, right? The only type of diversity they like is the aesthetic. They don't like the actual yeah, like differences in thought. <laughs> Melanic um, diversity. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I think, you know, like, I think I'm probably more uh, open to immigration, at least legal immigration, than than uh, uh, the two of you. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I do look at the, the kind of, like, propagandizing, and I'm like... 
you know, is, is this really kind of like democracy behavior, right? If we saw, you know, if we saw this happening in like China or let's say like, like if we saw this happening in like Iran, right, would we really say, you know, like this is this is the behavior we expect from an upstanding democracy? Like, of course not. Um, I think we should have the debate. Like, um, yes. I think especially on legal immigration, you know, like I think I'm right, but we should still have like a logical debate. Well, then, may um, I ask yeah. you? May I ask you then just a question? Like, what? Okay, mm-hmm. so like my concern is that the idea of a multi-ethnic, and and by that I mean like we're talking like thirty thirty percent, thirty percent. 45%. That's over 100%, but you get my point. 30, 30, and 40, let's say. <laughs> Is there any evidence from history that a multi-ethnic democracy can work? I, I mean, every democracy we, we've had has been – there's been a dominant ethnic group. And I don't mean dominant in the fact that they've just put their their boot on other people, but rather it was just – recognize like oh yeah this is a wasp country or whatever and and that's fine there, you yeah have- yeah we have we have like the united states whatever you think of the united states and like four banana republics right <laughs> yeah, exactly. we have like lebanon <laughs> exactly. we have um we have uh, i mean we start I think, like bolivia <laughs> i mean start looking at yeah. like these very diverse countries and and the outcome you know it's constant factiousness uh they're riven with conflict and i think we're starting to see more of that conflict in the United States. We're starting to see racial groups recognize that they can work together in what they perceive as a zero-sum contest for status and resources. And the only group that's not doing that is white people, because white people had that beaten out of their system. And I think that actually, by the way, just to be clear, I think that was probably a fair double standard for a while when whites were 80, 85% of the population, right? Like if I'm at a college campus and it's 95% white and let's say Asians want to have a group that's Asian pride or whatever, and they're 2%. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But when you start getting the groups up to 30, 40% and, and like this kind of anti, as we talked about earlier, this anti-white racism becomes mainstream and these groups are competing and they have no shame about it. They're advocating for reparations up to millions of dollars. At that point, things break apart. And that's my concern with immigration. I just wonder, do you think, I, I mean, do you just think that, I guess my view is like multi-ethnic democracy in that sense is probably just as pie in the sky as communism. Like maybe it sounds good on paper, but there's just no evidence that we can actually manage that. And that's what I worry about. Yeah, I think that, yeah, Aporia had a very good article on, I think like, it wasn't quite about this, but I think it was about kind of like, if you deny individual or if you deny group differences in a, in a multi-ethnic democracy, wokeness is kind of the inevitable result yes. and affirmative action is kind of the inevitable results. Um that's something I yeah. I have I've promoted that argument a lot because I do I I feel it, Nathan Kaufness has made this too and he and I are in to quote F Scott Fitch or well Gatsby maybe or F Scott no Nick Carraway we're in ecstatic cahoots on this <laughs> like I think that's so crucial to understand that when you cede that territory you just say okay we're 
you know, we're not going to talk about that. In a multi-ethnic democracy, we'll just pretend that all groups are the same. Wokeness is almost the inevitable outcome. I, I just don't see a way to prevent it without just being brutally honest about group differences. Yeah, on on the the dishonesty point, I think I agree with you. Go, going back to the immigration point, I think like one counter argument, and I'm not sure how much you think the kind of like racial distinction matters here as opposed to the ethnic distinction. Mm-hmm. But like you you can argue that th- there are kind of, you know, quote unquote, multi-ethnic states that are kind of like we, we consider nowadays, you know, like Italians and Brits and so on and so forth right. to be, you know, just, just white. Right. But there right. are examples of multi-ethnic states that I think are functional democracies that have, you know, like um, a, a mix of, for example, Europeans, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I agree with that. Yeah. And, well, and what so, you're so talking like, about, like, would you, would your immigration policy explicitly consider ethnicity or race? Would would my immigration policy explicitly? I know that's a touchy topic because the second you explicitly, probably no. Okay, you know, but you know, it will have a disparate impact. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah, like I, I mean, it's very funny, you know, like Canada. You know, people say Canada has this uh, this very liberal immigration system, but you know, like, um. despite and certainly they do affirmative action in some areas but when it comes to immigration they actually are more it's very funny they are more willing to use kind of skills-based tests um they have this point system for kind of um how well you how well you know english as well some other kind of like basic skills um job sponsorships are a factor and like some skills tests so so you know like those things those things have a disparate impact but um yeah i do think I mean, the American case is very interesting because, as as I think you said, there are certainly kind of U.S. European distinctions here. But as you said, with with America, it's kind of there, there's no there, there's no undoing it, right? Yeah. Save you know, like basically catastrophic sectarian violence, <laughs> which I certainly don't endorse. Right. Um, but by the know, way, there's this no... is one more reason to be conservative on immigration policy. And by that, I mean really conservative and restrictionist because you can't, uh, you can't unring the proverbial bell here, right? I mean, the, the, once you once you cross into what you call like se- racial sectarian violence or or just bitterness and like a uh, national divorce, which would be ugly with in- incredibly horrific ramifications, you can't stop that. So like we should be very cautious and at, at very minimum, what you would want to do is like, okay, let's say we do a little bit of immigration, we pause. We see if we can handle that. We promote assimilation. We do a little bit more immigration. We pause again, <laughs> right? Instead of embarking on this radical experiment, I, and I want to say radical, but in, in some sense it's not. We can look at history and the the outcome of multi-ethnic democracies or even quasi-democracies, it's, it's not a pretty picture, right? It's a sanguinary history. Yeah, the the kind of level of inter 
yeah, th- there, there does seem to be some level of conflict. And, and this is actually very compatible, you know, with the kind of woke ro- worldview too, right? That's that, that's the kind of, that's the very funny thing about it. You yes. know, if you think that's going to be all this racism, right? right. Then, you know, like, what, what could you possibly do to prevent right. this racism? I often um, make this yeah. argument, Ryan and Matt, and see what you think about this. But I've often argued that in some ways, progressives understand race better than the so-called race-blind conservatives. Like, they actually understand that it does entail conflict and tribal identity. And and look, I'm not, I don't want to paint too pessimistic of a picture here. I think different groups can live in harmony in different situations, but progressives kind of understand this as a fundamental dividing line in society. And I, by the way, I mean, I think if we wanted to talk about causes, I think there's an evolutionary reason for this. I think people have slight uh, racial affinity. I don't think it's that strong. I think I don't think it's I think it's gravity, as it were, which actually we think gravity is strong, but it's actually a weak force in physics, right? I think it's kind of like that. It's like other things equal, things will break apart with some racial affinity. But that matters. It is something that's difficult to deal with, and progressives actually recognize it. The weird thing is, though, that then you would think the natural solution to that would be, well, maybe we should like be allowed to associate with whatever group we want to and we accept pluralism, but then progressives call that heinously racist. Yeah, or, or they, they, they call it racist specifically specifically when it comes to whites. Yeah, right? when whites and, like, want sometimes their own when space. It comes to Asians. Right, right, you're right. You're yeah. right. Blacks can get their own space at like graduation or whatever, but if whites say, hey, maybe we could do that, then it's racist. I think yeah I do think like I mean the the reason why I like the kind of political arbitrage version um of, of this narrative is that you know like it accounts for the for the uh for like you know slavery did actually happen argument right like like mm-hmm. slavery did actually happen segregation Jim Crow did actually sure. happen mm-hmm. and you know, you can kind of fit the plot to that, you know, you can, you can exactly fit the plot to like, okay, this is a period when they genuine, when uh, black Americans genuinely did have, you know, like literally zero political power, right? They weren't yeah. allowed to vote. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do think that, uh, I, I do think that, yeah, there, there's this guy, um, Kofi Fan on, do you know him? Um, he's he this like yeah. Twitter poster, but he has this, mm-hmm. he, 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 he has this phrase, you know, that, that, uh, he posts all the time. He just like quote tweets so, some posts and he makes exactly the, the the same point that you do that the kind of like uh, woke ideology kind of understands uh, understands kind of inherent racial conflict uh, more than, you know, like boomer cons. Um, and, and he says like the woke are more correct than the mainstream. Yeah. Right? Like he'll he'll say this pretty frequently. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so, so there's definitely, you know, I, I think there there's some there is some kind of like horseshoe theory there. Um, yeah, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just going to say this is it's a very interesting observation, but by far and away for me, the most asinine thing that the um, progressives, uh, the, the the view that they try to propagate the most is this idea, this kind of like John Lennon idea, right? Um, so that you don't live in a realist world, that you you don't, you don't t- take Darwin seriously. Going back to what Bo was saying about, you know, there's probably this propensity for um, you know, some type of, and it, maybe you don't want to call it racial conflict, but certainly you know, out, the, the, the other, right, the, the outgroup, um, because obviously our, in our ancestral environment, we weren't really coming across other races, but we certainly were coming across other tribes. And so when you read people like you know, Gaddafi and Erdogan, 
you know, for, formerly the Libyan uh, president and the uh, Turkish, I'm going to say, uh, president, maybe prime minister, um, talking about you know the fact that they can uh, win you know, the, the the big game uh, in the long run without bombs and guns and tanks, but with um, their people, Muslims. Um, simply populating the streets of Europe with their baby carriages, right? Go out there. This is literally what they say, right? Go out, go to Germany, outbreed. Germany has a large Turkish, Turkish population. And I, from what my German friends say, they're much more well-integrated than other populations. Um, but that, that, that is the, uh, I guess, the Hobbesian view. And to not pay any attention to those statements whilst simultaneously saying things like, I think, uh, at one point, the uh, Swedish... I can't remember her, um, her formal position, but I think she was something like the in charge of the Holocaust Memorial um, you know, uh, Institution in, in Sweden. Oh my. And she just said, there is no such thing as Swedish culture. And you get these statements oh. repeated oh time and time again by liberals, as if it, you know, yeah. it is a type of virtue signaling. I think that's yeah. so dangerous if to, to not realize. That's why I say it's the most asinine part of the progressive worldview, to not realize that you are um, embedded within a uh, yeah, Darwinian um, but by the way, work. that the, the thing that's weird weird about that is that that's actually like has had been at least the mainstream sort of conservative position in the United States. It's like this: there's no such thing as like a people or whatever. It's just this creed. Like if, as long as Late you stage as, Roman Empire stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's like as as long as you espouse these three beliefs and you turn to the flag, you're uh, you know who cares? It doesn't even matter. And and they, yeah. I mean, I, I, <laughs> and yeah, Ed, Jeremy Carl has talked about this. He, he's talked about kind of like the founding American mythology and the and the American people and, and how that kind of got erased in the sixties. Right. America um, was a wasp country, quite explicitly. I mean, yeah. Eric Kaufman has an excellent book called like The Rise and Fall of Wasp Identity or something along those lines. And it's like you look at the quotes from, say, John Jay, they had no illusions about what they were doing. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think like, I mean, to, to return to the actual uh, to to the actual immigration immigration debate, I think like. If you believe, you know, like if you're someone who believes both that, um, both identifies in a culture, prefers stability mm -hmm. um, over other factors, and kind of believes that that can continue, mm -hmm. um, th then I, I, I don't think, you know, I don't think I have anything to persuade uh, to persuade someone like that. And in fact, like I, I think that if I were in that position, I would like basically agree with them. Right. If I were, I can totally see, you know, I, I can totally see the position from from their point of view where it's like, you know, this is the way um, actually. Um, Matt, if you remember, uh, if you remember James, like like he, he this was like um, this was something that I remember uh, him saying as we were actually going through the parliament building. Right. Um, that I found very moving. Like if you've had this, if, if you've had this tradition that's continued for, you know, more than a thousand years mm -hmm. um, and it's still continuing, it's gone through all of these landmarks. I can totally see, I can totally understand, you know, like the preference for that continuing just being like the leading term. Um, I think that like, especially in the context of the United States, but you can argue this is true for Britain as well. 
Um, that I just believe in a kind of post-apocalyptic politics. <laughs> um, and I'm serious here. I, I do <laughs> think that you're in the situation. Let's stick with the, um, the United States context, sure. for example. I do think you're in this, con- this, this situation of political fracture and not just racial political fact, uh, fracture, you know, mm-hmm. like there's a lot of, you know, there, there, there's a lot really? of white progressives, yes. right? You yes. know, you, you, they cannot win elections on, on uh, black progressives alone. There's, right. there's many, uh, many such cases, very many white progressives. Um, and that you're basically at a degree of fracture that is so extreme that like, You've basically gone off and detached yourself from, really, from what is good. And, and like, you know, I've had this experience both growing up, you know, like, I'm ethnically Chinese. I grew up in an ethnically Chinese neighborhood Mm -hmm. uh, for part of my childhood. I've also grown up in um, a majority Indian in neighborhood for my childhood and like these people have much more conservative beliefs you know and, mm-hmm. and these these are i should say beliefs that i agree with around sexuality around um you know premarital sex yeah. around dating like the, the dating scene I, I keep like telling people this like the dating scene within kind of like immigrant sub communities is just much better than the <laughs> dating scene outside of them right and, and for like fundamentally conservative reasons right. and to me, like the the kind of news hook for this, I think like Oran retweeted uh, tweeted something about this of like Muslim protesters against like you know Pride Month displays or something like that. Yeah, right. That there are, I do believe in some kind of universal biological constants that that are basically you know essentially conservative in nature. Mm-hmm. And in the United States, any kind of viable coalition, any kind of viable political coalition. Mm-hmm. Um, any path back to that kind of uh, tradition or to the existence of a kind of sexual, a healthy sexual culture at all will inevitably involve kind of Im- winning the votes of immigrants. Uh, okay, so I totally agree with that. I-, I could not agree more with that. And I am happy to join a coalition. <laughs> <laughs> that espouses those values and that promotes them. And you're right. I do. I do think you're right about. Yeah, you have to persuade a, a lot of immigrants on this. Now, th- this depends, of course, though, on having careful control of immigration, right? And obviously, like what happens. I mean, we've seen this with the Biden administration. It's been catastrophic. Is just. Uh, prodigious illegal immigration, which is not necessarily the kind of immigration, definitely not what I want. Now, I know you said you don't either. So I I agree with that. Um, And and you're probably right. I I actually share your views that we may be in like, I don't know if I would quite call it post-apocalyptic politics, but I, I agree we're at the like cataclysm, right? And the normal pieties of politics are being destroyed and the normal politics in the united states is probably moribund and it'll be gone pretty soon so yeah i agree with that and and i'm open that's why that that is i mean you make a persuasive case there that is why i'm a little bit open to that nevertheless there's the traditionalist in me (laughs) that, that still clings to like 
a little more homogeneity and let's slow this down. For sure. Like there are trade-offs here, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's an understanding here that, you know, there are things that you value and then there are things that, you know, you accomplish in reality. Yeah. And I guess it depends a lot what, as the argument you made is how much you're disgusted by and how odious you find this like weird gender ideology revolution. And I do find it quite odious and I would like to combat it. Right, right. So, so like, the, the further point on this is um, whether the world is in post-apocalyptic politics. And, <laughs> and by that, I kind of take, like, a strong, I kind of take a strong version of the Collins argument, right? So, so like, the, the idea is, like, you know, if, if world birth rate can, if the world birth rate continues to fall, mm-hmm. and we increasingly lose the ability to select for, um, you know, this is, obviously one of many factors but like high iq immigrants yeah right uh if we you know like you talked about brain drain earlier and like maybe it has negative effects on other countries i care about its effect on america you know <laughs> <Do> I? <laughs> yeah, pro, yeah yeah um, i'm pro brain drain and, as long as it comes yeah here. <laughs> yeah yeah I, I am pro brain drain towards america you know yeah um and um and the reality is, right, in a world with decreasing TFR, right, in in global decrease, not just in America, but across mm-hmm. uh, across the world, right, you will have further and further pressures. And eventually, yeah. you know, like, you know, I'm saying eventually, you know, this could, this could be several generations, of course. But, but eventually, you know, the supply of immig- immigrants, especially like high IQ immigrants, will be lower than the demand for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yes. if that's your... If you expect the world to undergo a process of kind of decivilization, of population collapse, of um, failures in in um, in uh, economies of scale, mm-hmm. in existing supply chains, in the ability for us to produce things at the rate at which we produce things now, due to this po- uh, population collapse, then you know you kind of want the resources. You want the people who are able to sustain those resources, right? Who who are able to sustain that production? <laughs> yeah, but don't you think so, so that's at, at some point? It. And then I'll, yeah. I'll hand this off to Matt. I just want to ask you this question, or like point out that at some point you're going to have to increase domestic fertility. You cannot keep. Sp- I agree. Right. So, so like, I guess the question is, where's the balance? So if, if, if you propose to me, if we're in private and we're talking, we're, we're in charge of immigration and you say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get a million high IQ immigrants. We're going to get them from Japan, uh, from India and from Europe. And we're also going to promote whatever policies we can to encourage domestic fertility. I am on board with you. I, I, I think you're exactly correct there. And I do think I think demographics really matter. I mean, it's, I know it's like one of those glib sayings, it's demographics, stupid or whatever, but it's true. I mean, demographics are indeed destiny and we should pay attention to that. And I think what you're saying is basically correct and we do need to prepare for it. Yeah. So so like the the thing is, uh, I'm actually having, and I don't know what your thoughts are on him, but I'll have a podcast out probably two or three episodes before this one with Lyman Stone and 
Um, re- regardless of, of what you think of his kind of like coalitional, um, his coalitional positioning, I think he's quite good on the empirics. And the empirics are, you know, even if we take a kitchen sink approach, it's very, you know, culturally dependent. It's very, you know, uncertain how 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 many results we'll have. So, mm-hmm. so I kind of agree with you mm-hmm. that, like, simultaneously, we do need a kitchen sink ap- approach to pronatalism and dom- uh, and domestic pronatalism. Uh, I mean, I am the, just, the... you know, I, I I'm just uncertain on how far we can actually get with that. Oh, I on... agree. I agree. Yeah. No, I'm I'm with you on that. I mean, I look at you know, say high fertility populations like the mormons and we think okay like what's going on there i mean it's clearly right, and there's recently been a collapse in mormon yes, tfr as well even right? There, yeah. right right but it does seem as though like the, the the group you can count on to have reasonably high fertility are very religious people who are very coalitionally oriented toward a religious belief that you should be fruitful and multiply and that that's right. what gives them meaning now Good luck promoting that across the United States, right? And or I Israelis. Say, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Israelis. Yeah. No, I should say I'm a huge hypocrite on this because I am not having children. So I'm just a contributor. Oh, my. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm trying to, you know, on this, I think I checked the box. <laughs> Oh my goodness! On this, I think I checked the boxes off. You know, I'm I'm a Christian convert. I'm trying to I'm trying to get married as quickly as I can. Well, go, you know, I mean, I'm maybe going to the Louise Perry thing. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! I mean, do, you, do you know what the Louise Perry yeah, thing is? I, I, retwe- time, yeah. I retweeted it yesterday. I'm like, <laughs> okay. God. Oh my goodness! I mean, I I'm very uh, it's. <laughs> I'm very attracted. I, I I mean, I don't agree with her on everything, but I think more and more people are recognizing that although the sexual revolution was indeed liberatory and I think laudatory in some ways, it had catastrophic consequences and and collapse of fertility is one of them. And and the way our whole attitude toward sex and toward family. And I I think she's one of the people who's speaking about that eloquently and forcefully. And I, I think that's great. Yeah. I also would add, going back to the total fertility rate uh, <laughs> Duma conversation, the idea that we've thrown the kitchen sink at it um, is obviously not true. Even Hungary's policies, uh, you can do various analyses on the effect of these policies. And you do see you know, the TFR goes up, I believe, according to most analyses, a little bit. Uh, but one of the interesting things is that you see lots of um, side benefits, ancillary benefits. So things like, uh, I think, the marriage rate has gone up, even if that hasn't had a massive effect on fertility. Now, that's, I think, you know, one of their most famous policies is something like uh, you have four kids and you no longer pay income tax. You know, that's that's uh, yeah, the, the, the woman no longer pays income yeah. tax. Uh, Lyman actually talked about this. It's, so so the, the, the savings are uh, much lower than you would expect. Um, he, he he thinks it's an insufficiently uh, ambitious policy. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a, yeah, that's a, those are nice adjectives. In, insufficiently uh, ambitious. We could definitely do better, and we will need to. Um, countries like the UK, however, um, unless you know, there is this massive <laughs> change of policy, um, maybe that comes about because the Conservatives are just demolished at the next election or in a few elections 
who knows? Um, but the UK can rely on the fact that you know, the, the language is English. Um, it's one of the richest countries still in the world. And if you look at the demographic uh, pyramid, the projections, uh, I don't think we're due to top out until something like 2050 at about 70, 75 million. I could be wrong, but we are, we are, we are a growing population. Now you compare that to Spain and Italy. Um, and obviously we've got to be careful with the language, you know, losing 20 million. They're not actually losing. These people just aren't being born, but that's considerable, right? That is, uh, so you, Presumably, you're starting to see the effects of that now and in the next five years with things like primary schools closing um, because those kids just aren't aren't being born. Um, now, that's fascinating for many different reasons. Economic, sociological, right? People, I think, tend to flee to the cities. So often, like, the cities get a boom and everywhere everywhere else just decays and rusts. Um, so the, the consequences of, um, you know, really desirable countries for you know the weather and the you know the laid-back mediterranean atmosphere uh, of those countries spain italy in particular um facing catastrophic uh, demographic collapse in the grand scheme of things i don't know i think i think that's that's incredibly worrying i think the uk can kind of subsist for a while on this uh, migrant labor this demand of course that brings a whole host of other problems um but there are certainly countries in europe that have it far worse than um than the uk yeah, Tyler Cowen has this uh, hypothetical of just um, basically, even if it's not true, we should all kind of live our lives as if the world is going to end in 300 years or something like that. Uh, I think he said that when he was on uh, when he was on Eric Weinstein's podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think about that, you know, you look at the TFR graph, right? It's kind of it's kind of exactly that timeline. The world will end in uh, the, the world will end in twenty three hundred. Um, well, I mean, like you, there are yeah, interesting. I'm not sure how how to take that assumption. Seriously. The West will end sooner, right? I mean, this is part of the yeah. problem. Is that? And I know that the the bien pensat ideology would say you shouldn't care if your forefathers were white and you're white and whiteness gets destroyed, right? But like, I don't know, that just seems empty or something. I mean, people care about, Japanese care about Japanese ancestors, white Europeans care about their European ancestors, and they want to perpetuate their culture, and their culture is somewhat related to race, and I think that's perfectly healthy. And I mean, but you're talking about the kitchen sink things. I mean, do you think Brian and Matt, this has to be done culturally too. And I just wonder, I mean, this is a little bit aside, but it, I, I think it's somewhat related. Do you think that it's some of these like gender ideology, the radical change in our comprehension of sex roles has had a deleterious effect on this? Like even gay marriage, I, I was pro-gay marriage at the time, and I'm now much more skeptical because I actually think the conservative arguments that one, it's a slippery slope, and I think we see that with this the the rise of this, you know, some what I consider almost perverse gender ideology. But two, it does undermine the notion that marriage is about two people getting together and having kids and raising a family. Now that said, I I don't think one should promote like negative attitudes toward gay people. I just think that maybe gay marriage was a bad idea. What are your views on that? I mean, gay gay marriage happened so late, and in the process, yeah, yeah, that's and honestly, fair. like, does not affect that many people 
So, 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 so I think well, that like, well, wait, can I interject? And then you can, sure. of course, retort. Sure. You say it doesn't affect that many people, but it does upset the to- the completely the understanding of marriage, right? To go from marriage is a man and a woman, which makes sense, obviously, because they can have children, you know, biologically with each other. It, it To go from that to marriage is about like oh i see what you're saying satisfying this like spiritual need to belong to each other that is actually a radical transformation that does affect a lot of people so so i think you're almost getting the causation backwards here oh i think we got gay marriage because (laughs) people no longer think marriage is about children oh i um, agree with that rather than the opposite yeah that's a that's a very astute point and i i do i I think causality goes both ways, but I agree with you that that's probably 90% of the causality. So I I concede that point. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to uh, bang my I hate the Tories drum again. Uh, I just just saw that David Cameron, Cameron, former British Prime Minister, who again, you saw himself as the heir to Blair, um, this kind of squishy centrist, although he would describe himself as centre-right. And certainly on some policies, you um, let's say, benefit reform yeah that's that's certainly center right um however he tweeted the other day and this was retweeted just because uh you know by one of these anon accounts being like i i I cannot believe that this is the greatest achievement of a british conservative prime minister something that would have happened anyway he's long said he said it in his memoirs he tweeted the other day that passing gay marriage being the first center right politician i think in the world to pass gay marriage um, was his greatest achievement or certainly one of them and i think that just tells you where we are right because Mm -hmm. (laughs) the 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 fact is there were still problems right you know cameron spoke about um the desire to get net migration down um okay it was nowhere near as bad in terms of the the boats coming from calais but there were still huge structural problems and that you can look back over your uh tenure as prime minister and think that as a conservative (laughs) prime minister That's the achievement. I mean, yeah, it is a, and I think you know, echo, echoing what you said, Brian, Pete Hitchens said something very similar, being like, you know, it just it just doesn't matter that much now. It's like it's not if you're a conservative and you're a Christian conservative, it's just not. It's now become uh, the water that everybody swims in. Like you can't even question it. To so to it's, it's like the race stuff, right? It's kind of you. Know, it, you're you're immediately putting a flag up and saying that you're kind of a reprobate, you're, you're beyond the pale. Um, <laughs> certainly in London circles, right? If you were under 35 and you said, oh, you know, I think there are, even if you just said, I think there are some questions that we could ask about whether gay marriage is desirable, you would get very strange looks at almost any house party. Right? Why, why would you say that? And of course, the I, I'll just throw in a final comment here about like uh, the role of technology. With te- technologies like IVG, um, mm-hmm. gay men will be able to have children now they might need an artificial womb or a surrogate or whatever and i think that's why if we i wrote about this before and i think it's worth saying time and time again if you rely on rational arguments if you start playing that it sounds weird right but if you if you if you're retort you always fall back on okay i'm going to argue within their frame and i'm going to argue at all on things that are kind of um just hardwired in by biology like for example the idea that um maybe we should be very very conservative with uh surrogacy because like the bell curve meme says mum belongs with baby or baby belongs with mum that's each each side of the bell curve meme right the uh, the retard and the uh, jedi are both saying uh, uh babies belong with their mothers wait wait are you are you opposed to surrogacy i, I don't really know really what i think about that but I, I would just take the standard economic approach which is um 
look, you've got to be very careful with regulation, just like if you, for example, wanted to talk about um, organ um, tr- trade in organs or anything like this, um, you know, opening the market up. Uh, blood donations is an interesting difference between uh, the UK and America. Um, in the UK, it's a voluntary thing. And I believe it, 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 there's more people donating blood than um, the US where you're paid to do it. Um, interesting. So yeah, there are interesting nuances and wrinkles that we can kind of um, uh, talk about there. But I, I would say if, if you look at surrogacy as it stands um probably like Bo, i would be very just like with uh, the fact that i think iran is the only country in the world that uh, permits the sale of organs and you can imagine what type of uh, picture unfolds from that you know who the, who the people who do the selling are who the people who do the buying are um yeah I, I i just think we need to be careful i mean i know italy under maloney has just come down with a very um harsh um policy i don't mean harsh saying it's a bad thing but you know if you get caught i think using a surrogate i think you face jail time in italy now um oh so my. i think you just have to have a very you, know, you you have to listen seriously to the economists who talk about elastic and inelastic demand and what happens with black markets um you can you can end up making these situations worse um with a heavy hand um but yeah, I, I think that it's just an interesting example going back to you know the the original statement that if you if you rely too much on rationality and arguments, um, well, eventually technology comes along and says, okay, well, two gay men can have children. So what's your you know, what's your argument about marriage now and the quality of marriage? It says, okay, well, you just have to kind of accept in that there is some type of uh, sacred is maybe a bit too theological uh, a term here, but there are yeah some uh, hardwired norms that don't require. 10 peer-reviewed studies to justify um i mean i think sacred is a good good use i do too i I think that it's uh more honest (laughs) yeah Um, i agree fair enough fair enough yeah well when it comes to surrogacy i i I, yeah i'm not sure you know like if i were born into like a society with like basically the kind of demographic trends of you know 100 years ago and the current technological trends Mm -hmm. maybe i would agree with you this maybe is also because of my age um, I am quite young, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I, I just think it's post-apocalyptic politics. <laughs> I think the TFR needs to go up, and you know, Line if it makes up. the TFR go up, <laughs> then we should do it. Um, yeah, I, I, I do think. I, I mean, that's a little bit of a caricature, but it's not too much of a caricature. But, but don't you, you know? Think, I wouldn't be too but, angry if someone get back said that to, about my position. You you made the you know you were talking about this sort of sexual conservatism, and I I actually think one of the important things that promoted sexual conservatism was an understanding that sex could lead to having children, and that that was the way you got children. Both both of those, right? And so. I think the further you divorce that and the further you make it like Brave New World, the more sexual morality will descend into turpitude and depravity, right? Because how how can you hold together like a notion that you should be chased before marriage, let's say, <laughs> if there's no worry about having kids before marriage? And in fact, if you want a kid, you can just go get somebody else to do it. I, I think that that almost it's almost like the death knell for sexual conservatism. Am I wrong? Which is possible. I think I agree with you directionally there. I think that kind of like I think that like there there is some kind of causal link that you can draw between basically 
Actually, I don't know which which direction the causal link is, mm-hmm. right? Going back on the previous term, but but I do think that there's there's some kind of feedback there where yeah, if we have more widespread embrace of so yeah, so, so if we have more widespread embrace of um, surrogacy, we will have less of a kind of conservative sexual ethic. Um, yeah, I believe that. I just think that the kind of second order term is going to be less significant than the first order term. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's just going to be more impactful that people have have more children. Mm-hmm. I think that that's just going to be more important in the long run. So one of the interesting things to try and thread back to an earlier topic in this conversation, if things are as bad as we think they're going to be with uh, you know, not just the TFR, but the fact that you kind of run out of uh, desirable um, migrants and people that just want to come to your country anyway and uh, prop up the economy. Um, if, if if this is true, then I think it's not <laughs> inconceivable that you have some dramatic policy change, like parents get extra votes in 30, 40 years. Um, oh, for sure. And you know, th- th- at the moment, you kind of have this view i think maybe in the you know the, the metropolitan elite that um you know uh parents are these the, the the people that might advocate these policies right and make the mouth noises about such things like these sententious kind of um <laughs> what, uh, annoying uh people who only only ever talk about their kids and actually that's that's precisely where we need to be right people that take pride in absolutely you know, being a mum being a stay at home mum um and yeah being part of the um, not to put too grand a, a term on it, but the the, the resistance, the, the the fight back. Um, if you believe in things like you know, culture being mainly downstream of of genetics and the fact that yeah, a- you, you heard it here, folks, guys. Uh, Matt Aporia Magazine. Um, we are members of the resistance. <laughs> well, that's the they'll thing certainly you, not get taken out of context. People, people um, can. I'll put spe- that. I'll put that in the intro. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess the, the caveat Sorry, here is people. Pe- the major caveat to that uh, type of uh, wording, although given the um, seriousness of uh, what we're talking about, it's is 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 not necessarily um, overblown. Is that people in these circles tend to fetishize being part of these circles, right? It, they make it, like anything, they make it their entire identity. And it's this Schmittian friend-enemy distinction whereby you know, anybody who's um, even moderately opposed to these views um, has to be um, thought of as, yeah, well, the the, the, the enemy. And, and that, that's the, the woke mistake. You know, the, and I, 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 that's my personal worry about uh, operating systems like religion, that they, uh, certainly for the middle of the IQ distribution, they um, incentivize um, running, for example, disgust as a uh, desirable uh, heuristic for making judgment calls. And I think ultimately you have to meet people where they are in society, right? You have to uh, acknowledge, like Kofner says, that you know, IQ and paternalism, that's certainly a thing. So like the gambling industry is a perfect example of uh, an in- industry that's entirely set up by you know, the high IQ to um, take money from the low IQ. Um, and if you understand, therefore, that people um, are in many ways okay, they're, they're, they're like the, the average working class person. They just want to get on in life, right? And like Bo said at the, at the start of the discussion, they they want a job. And a lot of men will, I won't say happily, but they will work a job, long hours that they don't like because it gives them the meaning, the fulfillment of uh, providing for their family. And all all of those things we have to, uh, you know, we have to, I think, 
realized are, 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 are quite important counterpoints to like the libertarian worldview um, of individuals. I totally let me enthusiastically agree with that. So do how how much of a how how culpable is feminism in this story? <laughs> because oh, we. Di- <laughs> I'm shocked that we didn't get here. You know, we've been circling around I'm, it. We I'm happy Louis to Perry. go there because what Matt said about this it sounds like a conversation I've had with my wife a thousand times while we were walking, which is like this. This metropolitan disdain at mothers posting on Facebook and like, look at how cute my kids are and whatever. And I love that. I want more of that. And I -hmm. I often say that um, feminism, at least its modern incarnation, I know there are, uh, it's a variegated ideology. So I know there are different kinds, but the, the sort of mainstream feminism is anti children anti-woman at home and and i think a good example of this i often so my wife has challenged me on this and i have said okay let's ask this question what would be considered feminist a movie in which a woman takes revenge on males who are disgusting by shooting their uh, genitals off with a shotgun that's movie one movie two a happy housewife has four kids and cooks for her husband well, we know the answer. It would be the former. That would be the feminist masterpiece. Oh, it's this daring, bold, Tarantino-esque <laughs> account of women <laughs> rising against their oppressors. And I actually find that loathsome because I, I think it both degrades motherhood and it encourages women, it, at the very minimum, to delay having children which in many ways makes them less happy, I think. I, I mean, we can debate that, of course, and it's really hard because you rely on self-report. How happy are you? We don't know what to make of that. But anyway, I, I do think I think feminism, more than those other things, actually played... Again, I know it, it, the co- it's bi-causal, but I, I do think feminism played a direct causal role in that chain. Yeah, and something... I think people have been posting the chart of um, happiness of youth happiness uh, over time by political ideology and mm-hmm. sex. Mm-hmm. And um, what's interesting is uh, it's like far, far above uh, the the rest in self-report mental illness is liberal women. Yes. Then liberal men above conservative, uh, conservative uh, women. Uh, and the gap between conservative women and conservative men is actually very small. Uh, whereas the gap between liberal men and liberal women is not, um, and that really is a very interesting, very interesting observation. Obviously, there are kind of like um, uh, sample size differences between the two as well. Many more, you know, many more uh, liberal women, especially liberal young women, than uh, conservative ones. But it, it is quite, it is quite interesting the kind of difference that there is a sex difference. Uh, that there's a much greater sex difference among liberals than among uh, among conservatives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's, I, I think there's this erroneous, and it's interesting because both libertarians and, uh, radical progressives share this view that like any cultural norm or expectation is somehow almost like the equivalent of a shackle. And what we have to do is ruin that. And like, if, if you have sex role expectations, that's somehow coercive or you know authoritarian and you can see this now with like pronouns in in um 
the idea the, the smash the binary how, how could you even that framing i think is wrong I, I don't think it's authoritarian but i do think it's coercive it's it's socially coercive oh it is um, socially coercive but that's a good thing yeah yeah right? okay fair yeah that's exactly fair. exactly yeah. we're on the same point yeah, yeah. Be, but i would all yeah you're right it is i i agree with you but like i, I would put it more this way it it gives a sort of reliable map to uh cultural and psychological well-being so people you have to shape people right (laughs) like the idea that what what we should do is we should just let people you know be anarchic and and I mean, actually, there it's not anarchic anyway, because in fact, what happens is the progressives replace the old, like, Cleaver family with this modern, oh, you can have sex on the side, gay, you know, pink hair, men look like women, men are women. That's the new manifestation. <laughs> it's like, how even biology is this intolerably coercive thing that we can now flip off. Um so really, you you can't. There's no such thing as liberating yourself from cultural expectations. I think we should just be honest about that, and then encourage the ones that lead to civilizational flourishing, which is having kids. That is a necessary part of <laughs> propagating a civilization. Obviously, yeah. yeah so, I, I just think, or sorry, Matt, go on. You have oh yeah, just a, just, just a very very quick, uh, I guess, note is the the left view of the uh you know the economy's role in this um i I think people have disputed uh, this understanding but it goes back to thatcher's view that if you weren't a homeowner you had no stake in the society in the country and so can you be a homeowner if you're under 30 and you're on the median wage in london you can't um so yeah douglas murray has written about this he's spoken about it um i think there is going back to that conservative um, readjustment, the Conservative Party readjustment, I mean, in the UK. Um, and of course, I know that this is a thing in San Francisco, in, in Manhattan, um, where you're paying you know, thousands upon thousands of dollars for like a studio apartment. Um, it's totally unsustainable. Um, and then you get this odd dynamic where people say, okay, well, don't we want fewer people? Because then the rent prices go down. And it's, so it's quite a complex um, you know, <laughs> yes. argument to yeah. engage in. Um, and of course, the libertarian types are always going to be skeptical of like rent controls, the type that you see in Germany, uh, where the ideal of home, home ownership is very different from that of America or even the UK. So yeah, taking the, I guess, the, the meat of the curve seriously, by which I mean like most people probably do lean slightly left on those important economic issues so that people can get a foot on the housing ladder and they can feel part of a community and you can encourage that high level of social trust rather than you know the churn that you see in london where it's basically a new city every seven years and so why would you invest in your community why would you care about the graffiti um and being right wing on the cultural issues okay it's a bit of an artificial uh, divide but i think that is where most people are and that's kind of what i meant by you have to meet people where they are um if, if, of course, you are somewhat optimistic and you don't have this post-apocalyptic view where it's just kind of like holding out for the collapse and you know embryo selection will give us the ability to effectively have success, you know, IQ successionism and you know it's like it's the the situation that you see now with blacks and whites in America, um, you know, they you can you can live in very dangerous cities, but as a white person in parts of San Francisco um, or in parts of um, um, uh, what's the state I'm thinking of? Uh, Mississippi, maybe uh, Missouri. You just don't see any of this, right? You can just insulate yourself off um, with private security and the like. Um, so that that's why I, I, I think 
there there is enough of uh, an understanding that the the left on the economy right on culture um uh politics captures a large part of what a lot of people certainly in the UK and seemingly seemingly in European countries uh want um i don't know how feasible that is given obviously all of as you've spoken about the incentives at play in irreducibly complex systems like you know the global supply chains that obviously um fell apart during covid um and whether you know, uh monoliths like the eu seek to rebuild a new type of politics having having taken that um that that uh, early warning sign from covid i think that's still up in the air and i don't know anywhere near enough about you know european policy to to answer that question but it seems that you know there are certain things that can't repeat um like for example um germany letting in something like a million million and a half uh you know migrants or you know refugees um that seems unlikely to repeat itself anytime soon um so yeah the, the, it, there's there's a zigzag to all this uh, policy discussion right um and that's where to now give um credence to 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 Bo's view yeah i do believe in ideology and uh people and politicians being able to make something of a of a dent yeah it's it's interesting that hmm, okay so an interesting hypothetical is something like you know if politicians if if like angela merkel saw the consequences of her decisions now um like 10 years ago would she have made the same decisions right i don't know what the answer to that is yeah i don't know I think in the United States, the answer is yes, they would, because I think that's what happens when you make a group into this. It it, it takes on this sort of talismanic significance that like victims groups in the United States have, right? Like you just, you know, one of the hallmarks of a sacred value, and I'm not, I'm not opposed to sacred values. I think in, in certain ways, they, it's, you know, hold society together. But when they're misplaced is that you, your cost benefit analysis get corrupted, right? And so like, you're no longer willing to say, well, yeah, even if this is costly, maybe we should pursue a different policy, right? Because that in itself is perceived as say racist or sexist. So I, I think that's part of the problem is you just, the sacralization is about these perceived victims groups, you know, trans people, women somewhat, uh, black people, Hispanics, Asians when it's convenient, but other times they're left out. Um, I think that would, and, you know, it just occurs to me, this is somewhat tangential, but it's obviously germane that we're having all of these talks about these important things. And Brian, you were talking to us, I think before we were on air as it were and saying you know it's just cope to say that media is worse than it was or content's worse than it was and this kind of content is to me it's scintillating it's exciting it's interesting i would listen to us i mean i'm not stroking my own ego here i'm saying like you two i would listen to that and enjoy it the problem is so we're having these serious talks about these very serious issues this is something you can't get on even Fox News, right? They're not going to have these kinds of conversations. And as you noted from that Hanania paper, the people is maybe less terminally online than terminally watching Fox. Okay, so 
how, how do we address all of these important issues if you can't talk about them in academia without getting fired? And you can't even get it on Fox with that. You know, maybe Tucker could get the closest, but, you know, he has other severe flaws and he got fired. <laughs> so, like, that, that's like what Aporia wants to do, obviously, is try to put these con- these really important conversations out there. That's what you're doing, obviously. But how do you get like that? 30 year old who doesn't care about these things, who, who's not paying attention to this or whose you know, professor says all of that stuff's just racist or sexist or whatever. Right. Yeah. I think that, I don't know. The, the, the question, the, the big question that I want to dive into in this last section is the question of kind of elitism, right? Or Straussianism. Oh yes. Um, I love it. Maybe the feminism debate is a good place to kick us off. Uh, But I think that essentially what happened there. So so Mary Harrington tells this story where basically elite women are, are are genuinely disadvantaged, right? They they feel like they, they want the career and and they Mm -hmm. do want that more than they want say motherhood. Mm Mm-hmm. And for this small subset of women, that actually is their actual interest. Mm -hmm. And they pursue it. They engage in political activism. They're in it for the long fight, right? And and so at the end of the day, you know, this is just a fact of political economy. But at the end of the day, they triumph despite not representing, you know, the interests of most women. Mm -hmm. And uh, she makes this case rather thoroughly. She also attributes a lot of it to technology. Mm -hmm. But... At the end of the day, it's this kind of victory of elites over, you know, over the average, average women, let's say. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you would look at this and you would look at the more general pattern. We, we can say the same thing, for example, um, for gay Americans, right? It's, it's, it's the same kind of deal, um, right? You have this very kind of organized elite. I think Andrew Sullivan talks about this, this very organized elite that wants to keep pushing versus, you know, the kind of normie gay quote unquote. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, this is what Andrew Sullivan would say that that just wants to kind of live a normal life, live Mm -hmm. a normal kind of upper middle class life and leave everyone else alone. Um, That you essentially get that, that we lack an elite containment mechanism, right? We, we lack a way to basically, and, and you might call this, you know, a double standard. You might even call it hypocrisy. You know, may, maybe we would be more willing to admit, you know, differences between the elite and the general population that maybe justify this. But that there, there, there lacks a way to kind of give the elite what they want without sort of making the, making the general population face mm-hmm. the consequences and maybe take something mm-hmm. that they themselves would not want. Mm-hmm. Um, for, first of all, do you agree with this framing? You know, when I, whenever I set up a question, I want to ask that. First of all, do you agree <laughs> with the framing? And uh, if, if so, what can that I do, elite mechanism be? My, my, I, I do with the feminism story. I, I think there's a lot to that, that you're talking about this somewhat aberrant uh, 1% of women, 2%. Like you see this in academia, right? I think if if you were to look at the traits of men in academia, they're much more representative of men in general. Whereas if you looked at the traits of women, they're more anomalous. The, the, the women in academia are, are, are less like more most women because they're much more competitive. They do want, as you said, they, they prefer the career. And you're right. So the problem is you have this elite and they're fighting for what they perceive 
correctly, I suppose, as their interest, right? We we want to be able to compete in this marketplace. We don't want to be impeded by children, etc. But that ends up affecting all women, basically. And because the New York Times would espouse a kind of feminism that supports that elite feminism, not motherhood feminism, not the feminism of the woman who's perfectly content and, in fact, like quite happy to, you know, help her husband's career. The New York Times would find that repugnant. It would call that misogynistic. That is a problem. You're right. And I've thought about that. And it it makes me dislike you. To some degree, I just think like on that issue, because I don't know if I buy it in the case of the gay men. I think I think that uh, Sullivan wants to believe that, but I'm not so sure that's true in that case. I think he actually might be the elite gay man who wants to have this bourgeois life. <laughs> <laughs> that, that'd be funny, yeah. yeah but, um, it may be true, yeah. Yeah, but with the feminism, like, I, I guess, yeah, like, this is why I, I see a kind of conservatism that's actually, like, more of a a working class, uh, less elite conservatism that is socially conservative, because I actually think social conservatism largely helps people who aren't in that elite group by giving them strong norms and prohibitions that help them guide their lives. And I, I, I would just like to, if, if what has to happen is that 1% of women have to sacrifice more of their desires and be slightly less able to compete, I think that's worth it. For for the yeah, majority, for, for the majority of women to be to be clear, the majority of women would benefit cuz you're right, one problem is we can't have an explicit double standard system where we say, "Oh, okay, well you're not a, a member of this group, so we'll promote this ideology to you." You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's almost impossible to do that. See, like, I don't, I just disagree with that. I, I think for the vast, certainly for the vast majority of human societies, and I would say even for the vast majority of American society, mm-hmm. you know, that this was what was told to people at Harvard. You are different than, you know, the normal person. Mm-hmm. You You can have, you know, there are things that will work for you that will not work for the average person. And they were even like quite smug about it, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and that smugness still exists, by the way. It's very funny that there's a kind of universalism of kind of forcing these principles on a more generalized public, but the smugness is still there and yeah. hasn't left either. So we kind of have the worst of both worlds. Okay, touche. But yeah, I, I disagree. I think that in general, you are able, both in general in societies and also in general in American history, you are able to keep those kind of elite distinctions. I, I would say- And we can say, yeah, there, there are various narratives of why that we we ended up stopping, we ended up not doing that anymore. Either digital media, some people blame it on digital media, some people blame it on television, right? Like we, it was even earlier than that. Some people blame it on just changing kind of egalitarian attitudes, right? Maybe Lindsay, James Lindsay is more in this camp. Um, but but for some reason, I, I, I do think that we basically, and I don't think it's a kind of permanent change. I think that we can return to a kind of elitism. And, and in fact, that the kind of like digital era technologies is more in favor of a kind of elitism mm-hmm. or a kind of Straussianism than say like broadcast era technologies. So like radio, television, mm-hmm. right? I think that digital media is actually more um, like podcasts, blogs, um, Twitter is actually more in favor of that kind of elitism. But um, 
Yeah, I, I do think that it's been this kind of great mistake to basically not allow these double standards. Okay, so... I get what you're saying, and I, I think you are right that there was at one time this kind of, I don't know, upper upper class hauteur and superciliousness or something in this... But but maybe even a, benev- a benevolent kind of it too, like uh, noblesse oblige or something. Like we owe something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I, I think I guess what I was trying to say, and I, I think I would qualify. I think you're right on, on what, as far as it goes with what you said. I guess what I would say is, it's virtually impossible to promote a narrative to a, a, like like the New York Times. I, I don't think could get away with writing an article in which they said. You know, there there's this cognitive elite, and they can handle this, but these people can't. Therefore, this right. I, I don't because the Straussian strategy is basically you don't say it, right? You just do it. You, yep. you yeah, exactly. Um, so maybe that, yeah, or you only say it within gated institutions. Yeah, exactly. You, know, you say it in Harvard. Well, you don't. This yeah. this gets to an. I have a hypothesis that one of the reasons academia has decayed and degenerated so much is precisely because. It, it's no longer sort of cocooned from ordinary normies. So like what happens is you used to be, you would have this, this philosophical, like say you were in your philosophy class and, and maybe your professor would say, uh, suppose you drug somebody and you have sex with the person. They don't know it. Nobody knows it. And you're happy about it. Is that morally acceptable? A hypothetical professor. Yeah. A hypothetical professor. Been on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now you can see like what usually, what used to happen is you would be in that class. Your professor would give you that thought experiment. Maybe you would argue about it in class and that was the end of it. What happens today is some, you know, 20 year old girl in the class records it. And then puts it on Twitter and then a mother encounters it. And I don't even blame the mother for like getting irritated or vexed or disturbed by this, but then that gets viral. And you, so you no longer have this Strosian world in which, look, we can handle this. Let's have this conversation and keep it from those people. Instead it spreads out. You know what I mean? So I do think that that's a problem and actually like it degrades discourse. I agree. Um, and I agree on like two levels. One, one is the kind of digital communications point, but the other is that the girl who, who would record it, the, that kind of personality type yeah. should be pre-selected out of, especially <laughs> Ivy League University, you know, you know well, like your, your local public college, whatever, <laughs> right. But should definitely be selected out, out of Ivy League universities. Yes. Uh, whereas I'm not sure that's necessarily the case now. Yeah. Well, I, the, so I've talked about, the, I, I talk about this a lot, like, but how do you pre-select that person out? I, I mean, I just, I don't know how you do it. Can't you just get rid of almost every single university apart from the elite and affirmative action, of course. But even the elite there. universities, like Harvard, you have those students there. I, I mean, cause like, I, I get the point, like, yeah, you, you, you know, you need people who are capable of having these mature conversations without freaking out and publishing it online and then getting a mob. But yeah, I, I don't know how you select for that. I mean, I don't think you can do too much kind of like psychometrically. Right. But I think that in a conversation, you can tell, you know, maybe not perfectly. 
So, but, so maybe the the interviewer should tell a few ribald jokes and see how it goes. <laughs> or, yeah, 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 sure, sure. Or like, I think that the, even without like fully triggering them, you know, there are ways to assess these things. There, there are ways to assess just how kind of you know, like Scott Alexander has this term low decoupler and high decoupler. Yeah, right. Um, I actually think you guys had a podcast yeah. mentioning this. Not not you two specifically, but Aporia had a podcast where this was discussed at length too right yeah we did um yeah yeah the, the paul bloom one yeah, yeah. um so, so he has this, this term low decoupler which basically means or low decoupler high decoupler and basically a high decoupler is someone who is capable of thinking in abstracts or, or prefers thinking in abstracts who is basically willing to consider these high these hypothetical scenarios without mm-hmm. kind of you know relating them to the norm Right, like right. like so someone who would be willing to consider, like let's say hypothetically the, uh, let's say hypothetically the age of consent was like ten. Right, uh, what would happen then? Right, right, and, and like a lot of normal people would say, like, you know, the age of consent being at ten, like that's too that's too repugnant to even consider. Right, you know, and yeah, the, the, that there was a kind of distinction there. I, I do think this is something that can be drawn out in conversation. Right, I do think that this is something that you can figure out in a kind of 30 minutes um harvard admissions but if it benefits progressives to promote this kind of behavior why would they since they more or less own the universities at this point why would they do that they wouldn't they they wouldn't i agree (laughs) this, this framing is that we care about these legacy institutions um and you, 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 again, if you're a libertarian, even a conservative, you get yourself into uh, dicey waters quite quickly because you're meant to be against the federal government or top-down authority coming in and saying, Harvard, this is how you're meant to run things, You know, apart from the fact that it should be constitutional or whatever. And that's obviously uh, an, an allusion to the uh, Harvard lawsuit you know, where they're discriminating against Asians for many, many decades. But apart from that, you know, libertarians and most conservatives should be against this type of top-down thing. So I think you get yourself into very tricky territory um and other than i I mean i I just think you need the utilitarian answer you need to just look at these institutions i'm sorry i do care about harvard you know i I know it's like very you know it's very trendy it's very inspirational to say like we're gonna start these new institutions and in fact like i'm going to uatx you know i'm going to uatx next week you know as a recording so i I, i'm interested in in that you know i think that it's great but you know, my, my traditional background, uh, my formal educational background was in pure math. You know, it was in the still functioning part of academia. And, you know, like I respect, you know, I, I don't know all of them, but I respect many professors, certainly. And, I, and I'm sure that I would have a very high standard for math professors at MIT or at Harvard. You know, even even like the ones I have met, right? They are genuinely great people mm-hmm. doing like important work. And you just look at machine learning. Right. A lot of machine learning, obviously, it's it's much more widespread in industry now. But where did that come from? Right. It came from a genuinely productive part of academia with like people who are still in these institutions Mm -hmm. who would genuinely benefit from just much lower bureaucracy. It's it's not even about the politics. It's about just like really like the stifling kind of like, you know, um, style over substance, the the kind of bureaucracy and the kind of like the kind of like rote repetitive stuff that goes on there. Right. Like I, I genuinely think like, I think that people just don't want to have the hard fight. They want, don't want to have, you know, they, they don't want to actually take 
the consequences seriously and and strategize and say like okay what does you know like a multi-generational plan to kind of save the harvard math department look like right um yeah i think that it's like you know is it exactly the most important thing i could be working on like revealed preferences is no revealed preferences that is that i think the most important thing i could be working on is you know moving to dc and doing machine learning policy but like is it up there Mm -hmm. i think it is Mm -hmm. Well, I, so I, I think this is, I, I was going to speak for Matt, but I won't. I'll only speak for myself here and then Matt can say what he thinks. But I have a, a parochial tendency to see universities through the, like sort of refracted through the lens of the humanities and, and the social sciences, <laughs> where they're much more disfigured by ideology and they're much That's less. Fair. Yeah. And it's much less productive. Like if you, uh, eradicated every social psychology department in the United States, I wouldn't shed a tear. I don't think we would lose much of substance. <laughs> in fact, the world might be a better place. And those people, that that mental horsepower that's being used on that could be used somewhere else. On the other hand, in in you know, like engineering and, and maths and AI, et cetera, it, it probably still the uh, physics, these universities are very important and very productive still still. So I, I should say that to listeners when I talk about this, I'm I'm mostly talking about that side of things. Yeah, I think sure, this, that's fair. This entirely depends on the level of resolution that you take, right? The granularity. So you could say, oh, well, it's about, for example, the neoliberalization of the academy and the fact that, for example, in the UK, when we trebled tuition fees and we became you know, second only to America in terms of how much it costs to get a degree, um, that you obviously inculcated or you exacerbated these norms of you are a consumer, a customer, and therefore you have the right to complain. I mean, you could you could have that level of analysis, and I think that's perfectly fine, adequate, and desirable sociology for a rational society to um, encourage scholars to undertake. But I think a more Spenglerian, you know, as you say, post-apocalyptic view of politics, and also a, a higher IQ version of politics, is to say, no, we're, we don't know where we are on the curve. Right? We don't know, um, you know whether we've peaked, whether we're on the decline, you know, whether it's late winter in, in, in terms of you know, civilizational decline but we you know as as darwinians understand um you know the fact that things like high mutational load are a thing and people that get selective for conformity and blah 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 blah. i mean there's lots of stuff lots of exciting ideas like this uh taking place in this kind of like broadly speaking dissident right sphere this community and i think that level of um resolution applied to something as specific as like why why is this why why are we losing harvard you can talk about the feminization of the academy but i i want to just keep pushing it back further and further keep going one step further back to you know what the elite theorists originally were trying to get at which was a much more mathematical scientific understanding of society um you know obviously Pareto is the probably most well-known example of this the 80 20 rule which is certainly overused in terms of analysis and it doesn't hold up anywhere near, near as well near as hold up as well as people think um but with the advent of behavior genetics and the um yeah the fine-grained understanding of uh heritability um we, we can i think offer a more insightful analysis as to why these things happen and maybe uh you can then start to readjust your expectations of and 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 you can even think you know is is it worth trying to save Harvard. Um, I agree that, you know, as someone who has some conservative leanings, 
it depresses the fuck out of me, right, to see Cambridge and Oxford um, in the state that they are. Um, at the same time, you know, that, that to, to go back to the autonomy of the individual, of the ubermensch, of the politician that can come along and say, yeah, there are no more gender studies degrees. Yeah, sorry, gone. Um, so you can make those small victories, but I think part of being in this movement is to acknowledge that those small victories take place within this, yeah, this, 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 larger curve that you don't know where you're on, but you kind of have, with the understanding of heritability of, of genetics generally, um, it's quite easy to uh, see that yeah, you combine that with the uh, total, fertil- total fertility rate conversation that we were having earlier, that yeah, probably it's not good, right? It's not good. And um, I think that level of analysis, just to reiterate, can give you a much clearer picture of where your priorities should be. Yeah, I mean, so, so so here's the problem with that. I think that the Italian school, uh, and for the audience, that's um, Pareto, Mosca, these kind of elite theorists from, these political theorists from, uh, yeah, back in the day, basically. Back in the day, in the good old, uh, good old 1600s, was it? Um, yeah. Um, the thing that I think that they get wrong is that they view a kind of they have an idea of like fixed elite conflict where where I just don't think that's the case where I think that a lot of the I think that I'm much more Straussy on on this that a lot of the inter elite conflict we see today is sort of childish and in fact totally optional that. For for example, I just recently saw like Matt Iglesias and um and, and David Sachs fighting on Twitter. Um, two people with you know good blogs, good podcasts, you know, who, who I just don't think should be in this kind of like you know totally vitriolic. You know, like I, I certainly think that they should disagree. You know, they they should, you know, write their blog posts and, and and write their tweets and talk about their positions. And I think they have, you know, interesting differences of opinion with each other and, you know, with me. But that this kind of like vitriolic conflict is just completely optional. This kind of like performative, you know, like and here I don't mean the beliefs. I don't mean the ideology, but the kind of affect of right, populism right. is just on, on one hand, one interpretation is that, you know, it's just downstream of democracy or it's downstream of uh, mass communications. It's downstream of the, of the medium, right? The medium is the message. Uh, another, which I think I subscribe more to, is that it really is Straussian. It, it really is this kind of, like, decline that has been caught. Like, it, it's very fun. The, the temptation of the elites to kind of, like, go to the public and kind of advertise to the public and, and receive their adoration uh, just creates this race to the bottom where you lead to kind of Matt Iglesias and David Sachs fighting on Twitter. I, I, I should say I'm guilty of this sin of, you know, here, here's my right. Of fighting on Twitter. Well, yeah. not so much of fighting on Twitter because I, I, I don't, I, I never engage in insults or vitriol on Twitter, but of appealing directly to the, the, you know, to hoi polloi, if you will. <laughs> um, 
And sometimes I think it's good to do that. And sometimes I agree with you. And there's a part of me that's very elitist. And it's like, look, like, let's, let's have these debate debates among people who can handle them. <laughs> and in some ways, you know, like I often thought about this. So I don't know if you're familiar with Catherine Page Harden. She wrote the book, um, The Genetic Lottery. So I, I think, and she, in, in the in the book, which is, it's an all right book. I think I might've actually read your review specifically. I, I did. Yeah, book. I did write a review. Okay. So, um, so I mean, it's an all right book, but there are just all of these gratuitous insults in there. And I think that's because it's attempting to appeal to this, this wider audience. And I've often forwarded this thought experiment to people who are in favor of like larger conversations and more free speech. Like, what happens if if Paige Harden and I had a conversation privately? I can't say this infallibly, but I think it would probably be a decent conversation so long as we both knew that the conversation would not be public. The second the conversation is public, the whole dynamic changes. Because now you're oh, yes. right, you're talking and you're doing exactly what you said, which is you're trying to appeal to other people. You know, there's this funny theory about one of the chief differences between the American Revolution and the French Revolution was that the American Revolution was private, right? <laughs> like the Constitutional mm, yes. Convention was explicitly private. Washington was apoplectic when even notes had leaked out, whereas the French were much more public. So that encourages a kind of demagoguery. It encourages, oh, well, you know, I don't have to deal with the data or with these arguments. I can just appeal to the people who know that racism bad and I'll win the, you know, I win the debate. Now, <laughs> the problem with this is where do we go from there? Suppose that we accept that. If other people are going to appeal to the masses and win the debate that way, what are you going to do? I mean, how how do you fight against that? Yep, exactly. Uh, I'm not sure, Matt, if you want to join in, you haven't. Well, there's there's just a, a very much a tangent to this. It reminds me of you know, going back to Noam Chomsky. Uh, the, the, you, you were talking about Inglesias and uh, this other figure who I forget now having this kind of uh, spurious. Uh, David Sachs. David Sachs, uh, yeah. The venture capitalist. Yeah, I, yeah. I know Sachs, yeah. This, this spurious uh, debate. And, um, you know, a lot of these conversations, um, they're just like luxury assets. Um, I think of, think, think of them as like uh, costly signals, like Noam Chomsky. I think Bo and I have spoken about this before, is a luxury asset. He's a costly signal um, that you can only afford to have when your country is uh, doing well, right? Um, because you can't just, you can't have someone uh, being that uh, vehement a critic um, in a country that's uh, low trust or falling apart, right? Um, you kind of need commissars. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do see a lot of this as uh, totally, these conversations as, Besides the point, and um, you know, I, I won't name the publication, but probably um, listeners can guess. There have been publications in the past, like Aporia, who have tried to uh, broach some of the topics that we've been talking about in this conversation and some of the art articles that we've published uh, previously. And people quickly, um, you know, the editors, the writers themselves, they quickly realize that it's not worth. Um, not being invited to the cocktail party. It's not worth not having Steven Pinker email you. Like, if Steven Pinker went full hereditarian tomorrow, and I've got no reason to believe that he doesn't understand all of the data, uh, he would not be receiving calls from Bill Gates. 
And this is only to be expected, of course, right? Jonathan Haidt wrote a 2009 Edge article, uh, basically coming out as hereditarian, saying that you know, the genetic revolution, which of course was barely underway in 2009, um, is going to throw up lots of unpleasant data. Um, now, uh, I think John Haidt is probably, I'm not as cynical as uh, many people probably like Nathan Kofnus, um, who has written a brilliant critique. No, you're of you're in the so, right place. I am the number one Jonathan Haidt hater. Right. So there, okay. are, there are people like that who think actually it's just not worth having these people because what they do, they they gatekeep and they say this far and no further. I'm not sure. Like, But what, what I will say, that you know, the central point was simply going to be, I can understand that once you get your Penguin book deal, and once you get the speaking tour and the speaking fee associated with that, and you're doing the, um, you know, let's say the the speaking tours, the corporate speaking tours, you're speaking at banks, you're speaking at these lovely cocktail parties uh, on the Upper East Side. Um, yeah, like obviously that's how the incentive structure works, um, and so that stuff is very boring. You know, the, if you listen to someone like Alex Kashuta's podcast, you 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 within five episodes you'll understand. Okay, there are a lot of nutcases within these circles, a lot of uh, weird Twitter and many such cases. But there are also you know, people that think seed oils and sun cream and toothpaste are the devil. Um, but there are also that. But it's also you, you get that whenever there's. Um, like a, a fervency and interesting ideas, intellectual energy. A lot, most ninety percent of the ideas will be trash or odious, abhorrent. But then you, know, when it's like you, sieving know, uh, for um, for gold, right? You, you, that's where the energy is, and I think that's what we're trying to capture at Aporia. You're know, trying to bring anybody, any interesting Twitter anon in these kind of like HBD or HBD adjacent circles, where you know we kind of have the truth. And certainly the uh, you know, the interest and the ability to ask and answer some of these uh, socially salient salient questions. If if someone like that pops up, then we want to hoover them up. We want to get them into our um, uh, ecosystem. A word that I uh, you know, keep using um, because we think in five ten years, if we become a you know, quarter of a million read newsletter, there's so even if politicians don't explicitly address. Um, these issues, you know, with reference to you know, the the you know, the group differences stuff that we're talking about, or whatever it is, right? You know, they you know, even like the light version of that, the James Damore version. Um, that is our understanding of how um, elites control society, right? That you can be the person whispering in the ear of the emperor, um, and I think that's hopefully uh, the who, regardless of who wins in twenty twenty four, if you keep promulgating lies as explanations for uh, things like group disparities and uh, violence in certain com- communities in, in uh, certain countries, um, then people, even ordinary people, long for uh, an explanation, right? You can talk to, I think taxi drivers are often a good litmus test for this. Right? I was speaking recently to a um, uh, Eastern European taxi driver, uh, actually several of them, um, and they were, well, I was telling them about the, the work that we were doing, and they had this kind of like uh, default blank slatist view um, of human human nature and you know, things like group differences in IQ. Um, but because they, it was just, that, that that's what they had been, you know, those are the waters, that's the, the waters of modernity, and they just hadn't questioned it. And then as soon as you tell them a few facts, or you, know, you tell them that you can predict, um, let's say, educational attainment better from, um, genetic data, right? You're doing a GWAS than from your uh, from the father's income or you know the the parental SES. Um, 
everyday people can understand this and they're awed by it often and they understand oh yeah that kind of accords with the reality that i see with my own eyes okay i understand now i understand these are kind of you know um incommensurate uh differences so yeah i think that's the very long diatribe this has turned into but i think that's um the the optimism that i this is what this is why i'm doing what i'm doing right otherwise it simply wouldn't be worth it well well same here but i do i want to even add uh, you know bounce from Matt's point and ask you this, Brian, or just get to this point about Straussianism again, which is it's it's really a complicated phenomenon, isn't it? Because if we look at, say, I don't I don't want to use I'll use Pinker with, with just to be clear here, I, I have no special insight into Pinker's heart. So I'm just speculating. But the so like let's say we have a private conversation with Pinker and he knows that nothing he says will be divulged. I suspect it will be a lot more of a based conversation than one he would be willing to have publicly because, again, the the Bill Gates, let's call it the Bill Gates phone call. He's not getting that Bill Gates phone call if he goes too far. So that suggests that part of the reason that he's unwilling to talk about these things and to be based, as it were, is because he's afraid of what ordinary people would think and how that would affect other elites, right? So that's the complicated thing is it's like it's going to ordinary people and then to other elites. Because like I don't think – it's not as if he's concerned he's not going to get invited to some MAGA rally in West Virginia. <laughs> that's not the concern. It's the concern that the other another elite won't invite him. I don't think the other elites would care though except for they have like a mob on their side too. It, it, do you think that that's correct? Or is it actually just completely an intra-elite f- battle? So, so, so the question is, yeah, I, I think there's like there, there's this misuse of elite by kind of you know populists, basically. Um, that's like, or or I, I shouldn't say misuse because some people, you know, you know, that's how language works, right? Like, like. People mean different things by elites. Yes. I think elite in the Straussian sense is certainly more of a cognitive, you know, intellectual elite and less of the kind of like whoever is in power at a given time. You know, obviously there's some correlation, but, you know, as we see in the present day, you know, that relationship can be strained. Um, right. Yeah. I. Right. So in the present, I definitely agree with you. Like, like in the short term, I agree with you. There are certainly intra elite pressures both in the kind of both in the kind of ruling class sense and in the kind of intellectual sense on on someone like steven pinker in the long run this is also where i i disagree with the kind of populist strategy more generally in the long run my theory of change just involves much less kind of like you know the the idea there is sort of like you know there's this elite, you know, suppression of this truth um, that actually the masses are more likely to believe at a given point in time. Mm-hmm. And so we're just going to like go to the masses, right. you know, the masses, you know, they, they might be wrong on about a lot of things, but they're not wrong about this thing. So right. why shouldn't we go to them? Right. Uh, and then, so, so the problem I have with that approach is that you're kind of arbitraging down right so like for every you know for every kind of like you know 
And we can even look at, like, say, the American public and see how, how much they really believe, you know, like, the based version of this. Right. Right. But but for every kind of, like, genetic realism that, that is adopted, you get a kind of anti-vaccine. You kind of get, like, a ratchet. You, you get, like, an ever-dumber ratchet <laughs> of, like, sure, you can get, like, one belief that's better, but you're also adding in, like, two beliefs that are worse. So, so, so I'm just very skeptical of this kind of cycle of populism. Mm. And, and in the long run, I think in the long run, you know, part of this is also because of the dem- of the Democratic Party primary system, um, and specifically the kind of racial composition of that primary system. But in the long run, I think that is what's responsible for this kind of like decline in Straussianism. You know, I, I do think in the long run, like this is responsible for the kind of, you know, genetic denialism, blank slateism, and so on. I I think I agree with much of the diagnosis there. Although I also just think the the dramatic increase in uh, diversity in the United States, coupled with the movement en masse of women into the labor force, and especially, uh, you know, worming and worming's a bad way to put it, excuse me, getting their way through diligent efforts, you know, often deserved into academia, but they, they changed the nature of the institutions. So I think that's more responsible for the decline of Straussianism. I mean, you know how it is just with like, if you're in a, a, a work uh, in academia, if you're in having lunch with your colleagues and it's a very diverse group and there are five women in there, the conversation is very different from if it's not a diverse group and it's 20 men. You know, I've had meetings with 20 men and <laughs> the, those meetings are a lot more based, you know, a lot more decoupling going on. So my my diagnosis, I, I think that's the cause of the decline of the Straussianism. I, you know, I'm sympathetic. Part of me is pretty elitist. And, and part of the reason for that is that I'm really into literature and I'm elitist in literature. You know, I'm, I'm T.S. Eliot or, you know, Ezra Pound. But if the conflict is going, if another side, if another coalition in the conflict is going to go to the people and use the power of the people, I see no alternative. You're right. You do get a lot of dumb beliefs. It's, it's inevitable. It's an inescapable, inescapable. I think you have to tolerate those to a degree. And that's why I've become a little more tolerant of like vax, what I would consider like ludicrous beliefs about vaccines. Like, Yes, I you know push back against it when you can, but that's how you. If that's how you win, I'm I'm willing to do that. I, I'm willing to accept that you're never going to have a perfect coalition. Your coalition's always going to have bizarre beliefs, and so long as they have enough of the beliefs that are right, are the ones that I think are important and that I care about, I'm going to ride with it. Yeah, I, I do think that. Right. There is a question of what, because in my, in my scenario, I sort of presupposed that, you know, there's more wrong, you're adding more wrong beliefs than the right beliefs. But like, yeah, I totally see scenarios where you think that like the cardinality of the, like the, the, the right beliefs that you're adding is just so important that it just outweighs the bad. Yeah. So you know, like, 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 just to, to interject, I'll give you a concrete example and you can comment on it. If I can get a coalition together that, promotes race realism and immigration restrictionism, but they also are like vax skeptical on COVID, fine. <laughs> like, I think the other issues are more important. And if it requires, I mean, take a different one, like guns. 
I, I find Republicans in the United States just absolutely, it's absolutely fatuous, their obsession with guns and gun laws. I, I, I have no sympathy with that. I mean, I, I shoot guns. I like guns, but I, I don't have this attitude about them that like every conservative politician in the United States has an ad where, you know, he's standing next to a truck shooting off an AR-15 and talking about how much of a badass he is. I, I find that off-putting and alienating, but... I don't think it's so important of an issue as demographic change, um, as feminism and sexual morality, et cetera. So, you know, I'm just willing to roll with it. Yeah, I, I think that in that in that case, right. Yeah, I, I think that I just have a difference in priorities here. I, I think that, you know, you, you just look at the, I have a very big leading term in terms of technology. I think that's mm-hmm, basically the mm-hmm. most important thing that you could be worried about right about now. Right. And that is my actual revealed preference as well. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I guess that's, yeah, I guess it's just a difference. You know, I don't like the term conflict theory because I think that especially on the elite level, you can kind of bargain and you can come to reasonable compromises sure. on this thing. Mm-hmm. But I do believe in a kind of conflict theory where people just have, you know, intrinsically different values yep. and that they're not going to, you know, that that they're not going to convince each other, at least of the of the, you know, different degrees and priority right. uh, of them. I, I don't really think that that's, you know, I, I don't think that's the case on a lot of issues. And I do think immigration is one of them where it's just. Yeah, I think people people born in a different time, and, and you know, like uh, people people are kind of worried to mention this. Of course, it matters. Of course, it matters. I'm like a children of immigrants that I'm in, in the situation where, of course, I don't think it's that bad. Like I grew up in <laughs> right. these neighborhoods, you know, and, and, and you mm-hmm. know, like like you should be, you know, you should be accurately describing, you know, the, the the racial differences between immigrants as well. You know, like my neighborhood was very low crime. Um, <laughs> right. Right. But yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but, but just to, uh, so you're saying yeah. that you think immigration, so like, I agree with you. I, I, I agree on, uh, let's say a moderated version of conflict theory. Cause I also agree with you compromise, you know, like that's how we get along with most politics is like compromise, you know, Larry David, I think described it as if everybody's unhappy, but they're not so unhappy that they're going to blow the whole thing up. That's a good compromise. Okay. So like yes. in most cases, yeah, we're, we're, we can do that. I I think there are these cases that are irreconcilable to the point of you just have to be prepared for like a protracted war on them. And I I, I think, so you're, seems as though you're saying maybe immigration is not one of those issues. I I kind of think it is because I think it's that crucial to the future of the country. Hmm. So, so like, and and Matt, who who's in Britain, and I think in Europe, it's even more important because you can actually avert the demographic disaster in my right. Opinion. And again, in, to call it a di- disaster doesn't mean I I dislike the people. It just means it, it creates so much unnecessary tension and fractiousness. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think. Hmm. Yeah. It, for the states, certainly, I believe in a kind of you know post-apocalyptic politics. Um, kind of decivilization scenario where we definitely have to basically compete for global talent. 
Um, and, and I don't, and right. I do think that's kind of preferable to the alternative. Okay. That's like less apocalyptic than the alternative. I see. I got yeah. yeah. In, in the European context, I don't know. Like like someone like Ross Douthat just just thinks that Europe is doomed, right? Um, yeah. Um, Honestly, I just kind of like plead ignorance here. I don't want to seem, you know, more confident on on European politics or demographic trends than I actually am. Yeah, I, I don't know. Could go either way. Do you have anything to add for your European perspective, Matt? Your I, I long for the time when uh, the EU is a decidedly right-wing uh, organization <laughs> if that happens i'll move to europe i mean i i'm you know like i you'll immigrate to europe yeah exactly and then i'll be an, yeah, I'll be an yeah. immigrant. i mean like people yeah uh, i really don't like that you can't say like simple things like look i prefer a home uh homogenous community uh it's not i i don't dislike uh different groups i i've i've you know, I think it, if people want diversity, that's great, right? I don't like it. I, I, I like, I, I'm a neurotic person. <laughs> I like low crime. I, I like homogeneity. I like predictability. And, and those are things that I treasure and I value. And so I want to fight to preserve them. Now, I, I take your point, by the way. I, I agree with you. You you will have to compete for these uh, for, for limited skills. And I'm willing, I guess I am actually willing to make that compromise. So let me just say that I, I, I would make that compromise. Oh, that's great. <laughs> but Brian, when you talk about this, you're, you're talking about, as you said, and I think this is very important. You're talking about low crime, high IQ immigrant populations, right? You're not, I mean, cause sure. the, the Hispanic crime rate, you know, different estimates, but let's say it's three times the European rate for second generation. That's a big deal. I mean, I, I hate it that people, and I'm not saying you do this, of course, but just in general, they they, they sort of poo-poo the importance of these crime rates. And like, look, if you walk down a street and you have a three times higher rate of dying, that might not sound like a lot, but you're dead. That's the end of your life. That's a big deal. <laughs> I, I hate crime. I hate everything that has to do with it. And I, I don't want to import more of it. So yeah, like you and I could work on a compromise and we could be like, all right, let's target low crime, high IQ groups. But to do that, you have to be able to have the conversation and to be honest about it, which we just can't do right now. Yeah. And there's the, I, I don't know, this is, another one of those positions where I'm not sure where the political spectrum is on, right? But we kind of have the technologies to filter better, or we will have the technologies to filter even better soon Yes, with stuff like polygenic scores. That's not right? going to happen, though. Can you imagine, the uh, Brian, you propose? Uh, I think we should do <laughs> a polygenic test on potential immigrants. You would be called a bigot and a eugenicist and whatever else. Yeah, I, I don't think, <laughs> I, I don't foresee that anytime in the near future, at least. Yeah, that, that's fair. That's fair. But, 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 you know, it's a very funny sentiment, <laughs> you know, like the ethno-nationalists, they're not specific enough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're using race, and that's stupid. I want to get right at the alleles. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so I had I had one other. I think we did. Uh, I, I had this written down as we were talking about. Uh, 
so I wrote down the Q word. I think you guys know what the Q word is. Um, quiescent? Certain... No, no. Oh, it's a not certain quiescent. Publication. Okay. You know, we're not going to mention that, right? We're not going to mention no, what No, we're it not. Is. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll so, refrain from You know, my, my audience will just have to infer. But yeah, l- let's say, you know, this, this hypothetical publication that was hypothetically devoted to um, dissident ideas and lost its uh, lost its luster lost its desire to pursue such ideas it is a kind of instructive s- story and it's an instructive story that you know you guys at aporia will have to avoid so right so, so, so what are yeah I, so, so what are your plans for avoiding you know I'm such a fate so of, of the dreaded excited i'm tripping ahead of you and i apologize <laughs> for for um interrupting you but um, and I'm sure Matt will have something to add to this, but let me say, like, I, I'll say nothing about other publications. What I will say about Aporia is, since I've joined, I've been even happier with our performance and with our ability to touch these topics in a way that is has been appealing to people. Look, of course, we get denigrated by the the usual suspects, and that's to be expected. That's going to happen. They're going to vilipend, vilipend us and villainize us, and that's okay. Um, what I think is important, and I, I've often thought this both for individuals and institutions, is you have to pre-commit, as it were, to what you're doing. You know, you have to say this is a part of what we are, and and take it or leave it. Because what I think one of the dangers, what happens is, um, you you start down a path. Maybe you throw in a, a, a heterodox idea here or there every year or something, but you're getting invited to hang out with, uh, you know, you know, the pinkers of the world. You're, you're at a Harvard party, you're rubbing shoulders with these people and you really like them. And I'm, I, I'm not even trying to, you know, demean that. I mean, that's important to some people. I, I don't care about it. I'm an introvert, but for some people, and so you become inured to that lifestyle. You, you, you really like it. And all of a sudden you start questioning yourself because that's not your brand. Yes, it's uh, it's been there, but it's not what your brand is. You haven't committed to it. You haven't said, we are this, take us or leave us. So you're afraid that people will leave, that they will they'll be like, I don't want to associate with that anymore. And I think that is what hijacks or or let's say it, it's it, is what causes the automobile of these radical publications to crash is that they they start to worry about that and believe me i've had these same worries i, I mean people probably look at my twitter and think you say whatever the f you want but no i i mean i think to myself wait what if what if this, um, you know, once in a while, I think this, like, what if this journalist who has a million followers who follows me, what if, what if he doesn't follow me after I tweet this, you know, like I understand that concern, which is precisely why I work really hard to just commit to what I am. Like, look, I'm a race realist. I'm going to talk about it. I think it's really important. I think we should do so with prudence and we should be respectful, but I'm going to do it. That's who I am. So if you're going to follow me, that's what you're going to get in your feed. <laughs> you know what I mean? And same thing with Aporia. Like we're going to talk about these issues and we're, we're going to do it in a respectful way. We're going to invite people to respond to us and, and we're not afraid to publish that either. You know, as I was saying to um, Matt, you know, if Kevin Bird, uh, one of the most, in my view, and I very rarely say this, but a just despicable actor, you know, trying to get people fired, whatever. But look, if he pub- if he wrote 
a temperate and serious response to an article that we had published, we would publish it because we're dedicated to that. But we are also dedicated to being what we are. And we've been clear about that. And I'm committed to that. And I'm the executive editor and Matt's my boss. And I know he's committed to that as well, but I will let him say more. Yeah. Um, So the question is, how do we not go the route of uh, previous publications uh, that have tried at some point in time to advance some of these yeah how, how do you avoid conquest law yeah right? yeah but yeah yeah yes. good, that's that's yeah. Good, nice and, and for the audience that's just you know the idea that uh institutions tend to tend to drift leftward yeah and that's even even right-wing institutions actually tend to tend to not be able to hold uh the ground uh indefinitely so yeah in terms of inoculating ourselves against the allure of future success and the temptations that that brings, um, you know, the cocktail parties uh, with uh, the aforementioned figures. Um, I'll come on to that. But one thing I will say is that I don't care one iota about the splenetic ramblings of madmen, of of the woke, of the 5% of the population who are the offense archaeologists who will take tongue-in-cheek tweets or jokes, you know, shitpost tweets or uh, serious articles that we've written and proclaim fascist, fascist. Uh, these people will always exist. And so I, they, you know, to, to re-quote uh, Don Draper, Russell Warren in one of our podcasts recently just quoted uh, this brilliant part from Mad Men where Don Draper says, I, I don't even think about you, you know, to some underling. Um, in the office. Yeah, I don't even think about these people, right? Because they're, they're going to do what they're going to do. Um, but the people who can be won over, right. who, for example, might follow um, a mainstream popular geneticist like Adam Rutherford, who actually writes you know, pretty decent you know, pop academic books teaching people about genealogy and genetics, uh, albeit filled with you know, throat clearing about eugenics and often name calling. But you know, people learn some basic science. That's uh, you know, maybe a net good. It's hard to say. Uh, there, there, there's a significant contingent of, uh, as Charles Murray likes to say, uh, New York Times readers with humanities degrees who uh, are more than interested enough in the, you know, uh, the science uh, that they can read a a um, mainly you know factual article with a little bit of you know uh, this is what it might mean for policy this is what it might imply and they they there are very few people who you know, throw their arms up saying you know this this is heinous and I think people within our circles certainly the ones who are. Um, employed by universities or even think tanks uh, who have been subjected, you know, like Bo, for example, who lost his job. Um, th- th- these people rightly feel that you need to be a bit more conservative and you need to play the violin. You need to you need, you need to be a bit Straussian. Um, and I think that's often, you know, um, this uh, error detection. You know, this radar is is is, is uh, miscalibrated, right? It's it's overfiring uh, because of what's happened to them. And I think that most people, going back to the taxi driver, are actually quite interested in this stuff um, because it's socially salient, right? It has obvious uh, common sense uh, consequences. Um, now, to go to the question of like how you inoculate yourself against um, 
you know, going the way of uh, other publications and thinking, okay, this is just too toxic. Um, we are more than just a publication. Now, I can't say too much, but we are uh, very much plugged into this kind of uh, subterranean network, um, very much like HBD uh, adjacent. Um, and we have other projects. There are other things that we do um, that will probably never see the light of day. Um, and so we know most people in this in this uh in these circles, uh, we don't like all of them as people, but we respect their their output, and we we talk to them, and we try to understand what they're doing, what their worldview is, what their perspective is, what they want. Um, and so, if there are people listening who are aspiring writers who might want to submit a piece for Aporia, a proposal, or aspiring researchers who might want who, who might seek funding, right? That, you know, perhaps they've been uh, their fingers have been burnt before, and they don't want to touch this. Perhaps they want to publish publish under a pseudonym. Uh, we are. The people that you could talk to in order to go about getting perhaps some research funding or you know working on papers under a pseudonym or whatever. So this is more than just a publication, and I think therefore it's just totally uh, beyond the realm of possibility that we would ever fold because this is uh, this is our everything. If, if I heard Matt correctly, he may be the only person who's ever accused me of being excessively cautious about these things. <laughs> 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 that's that's great. Um, I, I do have a section here on kind of future um, on future technologies, and you know, I, I have a long running disagreement with people. I don't think people like like I, I heard the recent um, Francis Galton podcast on your uh, on Aporia. You know, mm -hmm. definitely worth checking out. And I, I think the historic, on the factual case, I think you guys may be correct that kind of eugenics never meant this kind of like, you know, totalitarian state-driven thing that Francis Galton originally wanted it to be like a more voluntary thing akin to basically like normal mate selection. Mm -hmm. on, in a kind of factual sense, maybe I agree with you. In the kind of like, you know, real politics sense, most people, you know, if they think of eugenics, they if, if they even know what that word means, they think of like Nazi experiments. Oh, I just think it's a lost cause. Yeah. Um, I, I just think it's been propagandized into the ground. You mean you the think defending the term is, the, is a lost cause? Yeah, yeah I, okay. I, I don't think it's very useful to to defend the term. Mm -hmm. I, I should. I think that you know the the better distinction that you should make is kind of you know between state coercion if people call that eugenics sure. then you know i'm happy to leave the term to them yeah, i totally and agree. say like no what, what we support is kind of voluntary technologies mm -hmm. you know non-coerced use of say embryo selection or um when it is you know safe and readily available gene editing right yeah, yeah. to, to, to like really really talk about kind of voluntary uses mm -hmm. of those technologies i think is the maybe better path um but anyways, I don't know why we why I mentioned that because I was going to say that there, this is a long list of topics for maybe a future episode because uh, we, we are running a bit low on time. I do have more time than uh, I, I said before, but um, just because of a few things moving around. But uh, I, I do want to get to the, near the end of the show, so I have two two questions left. Um, one is uh, one is uh, heavily inspired by you guys, but will be slightly different. And one is the actual last question. Great. So, so the heavily inspired question is: um, you guys often ask, "What is your most controversial 
opinion. Uh, and I think you typically mean like to the mainstream. Yes. Um, I, I think we've talked about that plenty today. <laughs> um, so, so I want to ask, what is your most controversial opinion within your kind of insider circle? Within like people who you know, people who you love, people who read Aporia magazine, what that what will great. you say that will get them to unsubscribe? Uh, okay, that's good. I I'll take I a crack at this. Okay, go all on, right, go. and then I hope Matt will take a crack after this because I'm actually excited to hear it. <laughs> um, I think Marx was a genius, a, a quite profound thinker, both for his exploration of conflict in history, but also economically. And I I am. I guess I did say this, but I think if I started to emphasize this more, people would become maybe a bit disgruntled. Uh, I I am very economically on the left. Um, I, I mean, I, I obviously I oppose communism. I think it's it's a ludicrous idea. You know, misunderstands human nature, etc. But I am very pro union. I'm you know I'm traditional. Like what you thought of as the Democratic Party in the 60s, I, I would be almost fully on board with that. So that definitely, I think, distinguishes me from a lot of people in that community. Yeah, I, I think I have two. Uh, one is, I'm not sure, as I said earlier, I think we are kind of on rails to some extent, and you can kind of just tilt the direction you know, <laughs> every now and then but fundamentally you're ending up in the same place so i i my, my one of the most controversial views is you know it, it, does any of this make a real difference it's you know just like the, it's just the nihilist you know the black pill of you know, eventually <laughs> you know your name will be said for the last time and uh you know it's it's so it's kind of it's not cope but it's just it's retroactive storytelling, like you know, going back to the idea of fetishizing what we're doing. It's giving us meaning, and we pretend we're you know, it's, it's larping, right? So if 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 the cycles of civilization are correct, and like even embryo selection IVG um, won't have enough uptake, or perhaps there are unforeseen negative effects. So I mean, that that is the big question, right? We for the first time in human history, you have some technology that could allow you to you know, attain escape velocity and set up a um, you know, post 200 IQ civilization on Mars to be able to reach um, your biological limit on intelligence and then maybe with uh, artificial wombs to circumvent that, which is you know, mainly head size, right? So um, artificial wombs would allow you to circumvent those some of those biological limits um, and then to integrate AI. You know, that's the post-human uh, or you know, transhuman view, which I think is... Um, somewhat inspirational and obviously scary. And I guess the, that bleeds into my second very controversial view, which is if you are a transhumanist in that sense, where right, you think that that is, you know, our job is we're kind of climbing this invisible rung of the you know, intelligence ladder, trying to get closer and closer to um, God as a metaphor or you know, as a literal thing, right? We are trying to imitate that. Um, then maybe maybe we should all be post-racial right? in the sense that you know, the the best will win out and it will just be some weird melange of like, you know, maybe there aren't enough Ashkenazi Jews, but like East Asians and whites and what, you know, whatever the best admixture is, that will kind of end up being the default uh, human, the universal human. And so in a sense, yeah, yeah, like it kind of contradicts what we were saying earlier about, isn't it great that we have Japanese and all of these nation states, but in the long, if you're a long-termist, then I think you kind of have to be post-racial. 
Oh man, that's a term. That's a term that's very funny to bring up <laughs> near the end. You know, I'm a long termist in that I have four hour podcasts. <laughs> um, uh, man, yeah, all of the the transhumanism questions. It's funny. I I wasn't sure if uh, I, I wasn't sure if I did enough prep for this podcast, but we ended up, you know, almost entirely not really covering. The yeah, I, I think there's like two main branches of aporia. One is the stuff that we did cover. Mm-hmm. One is the uh, one is the transhumanism. Uh, I do think it's a kind of you know, it, it's certainly I think within the right, it's a spicier topic. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. um, you can. We, we did talk about Louise Perry. We talked about Mary Harrington. You know, many of those people would be very would be very against yes um that kind of transhumanism Um, but that's a fight that we will have another day um so so the last question of the show the last question of the show everyone gets it is uh is a double ender what is one thing in the world that has too much chaos and needs more order one thing in the world that has too much order and needs more chaos holy shit (laughs) i need a few minutes on that (laughs) and preferably something that we have not talked about yet wow oh okay okay too much order. I mean, it's like it's that's a Petersonian framing. If ever, if ever I heard one, the dragon of chaos, you are man. The second person who has said that, and yes, uh, you exactly. can probably that's guess what I was thinking person. too. That's exactly what I was thinking. Um, wow. I mean, I guess maybe we have spoken about this, but um, our sexual norms to have another controversial view. Uh, that is kind of a free more chaos or more order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, it is just um, the. I mean, they talk about it almost in um, in synonymous terms, right? Fluidity. So that is a level of uh, unsustainable chaos. Unsustainable, not because it's so um, mental, but because these people don't have kids or enough kids. So there was this uh, tweet going around the other day uh, showing uh, Ellen Page or what, what's her, his name, whatever. I'm dead naming Ellen Page. How whatever. dare you? How dare, how dare I? But, you know, it was... Elliot it, it, Page. Wait, is, Elliot. It not, is it not Ellen now? It's, I, no, it's See, see I'm like now. so tuned out of yeah, certain yeah, culture yeah. wars. It's very boring yeah. to me. It's very boring. But the, that, yeah. the, and I'm sure it's taken out of context, but the tweet was something like, you know, it was an interview with her just saying how <laughs> how joyous her new life was. And it was just like, dead, she was dead behind... He, wait, he was dead behind the eyes. And, um, yeah, I, I think this is uh, what happens when you pretend that... Um, you know, having the desire to change your biological sex isn't obviously a, a mental illness, which doesn't you know entail um, treating those people badly. You, know, you can talk, you can say the same about homosexuality, right? Um, uh, but um, th- this is far too taboo to say now, and um, I think that's one small part of this chaos in the sexual marketplace. Um, you can throw so many things into this, right? Pick up artistry, um, the, the, the kind of like the neoliberalization of the, um, you know, the mating market where, you know, it's just totally acceptable to, you know, have university students, like when I was at university, set up pages, which are dedicated to rating women, you know, by taking, uh, surreptitiously taking photos, right? Without their consent. I mean, like, yeah, seven. And this is kind of encapsulated by the Twitter meme of like every hot girl is like mid you know by some guy that's not got a job and not got a chin so um yeah i think that there's just like untrammeled chaos <laughs> that would uh, benefit from some type of uh pivot back to like mad men 1960s norms which i'm not saying that go go back to those norms i'm just saying inject that level of you know at least allow people for example to live on a single salary um 
which is really like, that's not even 60s, right? That's like 1980s. You could be a, a cab driver in New York and you could support a fam. You could live in New York and support a family of two or three uh, as a, as a, just on the cab driver's wage. Um, so yeah, I think there's far too much chaos in the sexual marketplace. I'm going to try to go somewhere different from what we talked about. So I like this question. So here's what I have for you. In poetry, modern poetry, there's too much chaos. And in modern film, there's too much order. And I will explain. So poetry went from, you know, very disciplined forms of meter and verse into free verse, which at first was liberate, liberating and led to great poems, The Wasteland, um, Ezra Pound's poetry, some of Wallace Stevens, etc. But now it's just turned anarchic and almost a caricature of poetry where you'll go to a poetry reading, somebody be up there, usually like a 20-year-old woman with pink hair, banging a gong and saying microwaves, you know, children dying, squids, <laughs> just this kind of surreal stream of consciousness. paper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> with, with apparently no order or, or discipline. And I, I revile that. I think it's time to bring back some discipline into modern poetry. On the other hand, film, especially at least mainstream studio films, have become utterly predictable. And it's all these superhero stories in which Nobody can die. Nothing has meaning because you know they're making the third movie and then the fourth movie and the fifth movie and the studio saying you can't do that. To Iron Man would never do that. I would like to see more chaos in there. Make make some movies in which, you know, like the I'll give you a concrete example. The the three Star Wars movies that they made, the new ones. Mm. I mean, do something original and shocking. You know, have. Ray kill Luke Skywalker. I mean, take a risk for F's sake. You know, <laughs> so dull. Yeah, that, that's where I thought it was going too. Yeah, I, did, I, I, I thought Ray would turn out to be evil. That would have been yeah. awesome if they had done that. And at the end of that, the 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 last Jedi, if Ray had joined Kylo and they had now we sound like nerds, but whatever, and they had killed Luke Skywalker. as opposed to the rest of the podcast. <laughs> Touche. Yeah, sorry. Go on. Yeah, yeah. Right, but this is this is what I mean. It's so ordered in this. It's just milk toast and and utterly, you know, it's just utterly uninteresting. So more chaos in the films. Take a few more chances. Mix things up. Some of them won't work. Some of them will. But that'll be fun to find out which are which. Yeah, for sure. That's uh, that's a great sentiment uh, sentiment to end on. Um, and you know, maybe the same is true about, um, about policy as well. Um, <laughs> it could be. Okay. Uh, Matt, do you want to answer the second part or, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking again, along left wing economic lines of, um, you know, the, 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 the standard way of organizing firms, you know, incredibly rigid hierarchies. Um, there, there's been a, something of a dent made in this, right? With the, the, the now mocked like open office and you can, you know, that everyone's wearing sandals and all of this stuff. But I do think there's a serious point there, which is, you know, that we are, uh, having this conversation. We are the elite, right? We didn't, we often tend, you know, like COVID is the good example, right? We tend to be able to, uh, work wherever we please. Um, and most people just don't have that luxury. And I think, um, especially as automation 
uh, AI and all of these other jobs, which are you know, off, ironically they're going to hit the the lawyers of the world first, right, before they hit the plumbers. Um, but let's take the one case of driving. Going back to Petersonian points, this is something that Jordan Peterson uh, once mentioned. You know, it's, I think the largest industry, if you bracket it, you know, uh, like that, you know, is driving or, or like logistics or whatever. And obviously, it's predominantly men. And so, what happens when you just rip out? I know, like driverless cars have been promised for for many decades now, but eventually they will come. And I'm not sure that they're going to come so late in the in the day that we've had enough time to lay the groundwork for just taking sweeping you know the rug from you know, uh, mid to low IQ men who, um, yeah, often they, they actually earn quite a good wage, right? Trucking uh, around the country, especially you know, in in, in uh, the US. And so that's something that I would like to um, rethink. You know, that, that, that's one example, uh, driving, but I, I, just, I think the standard responses like you know ubi or whatever which is basically saying oh don't worry about not having jobs rather than saying how can we talk you know not everybody can be a poet and that would be a horrendous place if everybody were um you know as christopher hitchens once said everybody's got a book inside them and in most cases that's where it should stay (laughs) um so (laughs) you you have to be serious and you're going back to like david graber who perhaps was you know somewhat asinine but um he wrote this book, which is really just one of those books that is a long article and should have stayed as a long article uh, called Bullshit Jobs. So let's just remember that most people um, are living in a pretty dull, um, living a pretty dull existence at work and they're, you know, they are clock watching. And I've done it. I'm sure we all have. Um, I couldn't imagine doing that for 50 years. And so trying to think about how we can reorganize in a time of you know, immense disruption, the standard um yeah the the labor market the the standard way of organizing the economy i think is probably uh, my answer bit of chaos yeah i think that i i just have a white pill for you you know this is a great way to end it you know we'll do a little bit of ai uh, of ai takes i i think this understanding of ai as this thing that is primarily kind of you know tactile that is physical uh, that is, you know, self-driving cars. It's, it's just wrong. It's just, it's in the perfect intersection of, you know, extremely counterintuitive, extremely kind of against the grain, and also just like undoubtedly empirically true. Like, like we have, I, I tweeted this recently, right? Larry Summers was saying something about, you know, like it's because of AI, it's all going to be about like EQ. Now mm-hmm. it's like, this is this is the most disproven AI take that exists. Yeah. We have data sets of human rated performance of AI uh, versus humans in terms of kind of like quote unquote empathy measures, right? This is humans rating, you know, they don't know, but the but the researchers know mm-hmm. um, both AI and human on empathy measures, and the AI is already far more, you know, quote unquote <laughs> empathetic. Right. You know, we're going to learn a lot about what actually makes us human, and it's going to turn out that it's, uh, you know, very spicy things that make us human. But uh, yeah, I, I think the truck driver, you know, I think the truck driver will be mostly fine. You know, I think that, you know, like the working age, you know, like the trade school male will be mostly fine, you know. And in fact, you know, actually, especially for the trade school male, I think we'll be actually, you know, we'll make more money, we'll make notably more money than, uh, I mean, they're already making pretty good Mm -hmm. money, but we'll make notably more money in the future as well.
Um, so, so maybe that's a very happy, yeah, yeah. optimistic note to end it. You know, that that's a good way to finish well, like off, you said, you know, the, um, perhaps the real danger post-apocalyptic politics. As you, as you, sorry, like you said, perhaps the real danger with AI. I think I read this in one of your recent pieces is the fact that once you inject AI into the culture war, it's going to be. Uh, which AI is auditing your taxes, right? Which AI is <laughs> spying on you? Um, and that's maybe the, the the broader worry. Oh, yeah. And not only that, but... Uh, well, no, this is going to be a future piece. <laughs> um, maybe with American Mind, maybe with a tablet. But, cool. you know, it, they, say, they say that if you're not, if, if you don't, if you're not paying a price, then the product is you. Um, yes. If they're not being, if they're not telling you what they're regulating, you know, what's being regulated is you. And I think that that's what's going to happen with AI regulation is that there, it's going to be so kind of vague and innocuous that it's just going to be, you know, kind of, you know, Russiagate 2.0 that, mm-hmm. that they're really going to be just, just like, just like, you know, just flagging all sorts of normal, you know, uh, normal people posting as like AI generated content. And that's just going to be, you know, they're, they're just going to like just trample over the First Amendment if they can. Um, but anyways, no, n- no doomerism for now. You know, we're, we're, we're going to talk about, you know, the increasing wages of, uh, of, of a trade school workers. Um and, you know, thanks for coming on the show for this very optimistic and certainly <laughs> non-nerdy show. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you it. for having us. I hope you enjoyed my interview with the editors of Aporia magazine. You should also definitely check them out. They're in the description below. As always, if you like the show, the best thing you can do to help us out is to let a friend know, just like I said at the beginning. And you can also help us out by giving us a like, giving us a five-star review, you can go to my Substack below and give either a free or paid subscription. That's another way to support us. And of course, you can let us know about future episodes, future guests that you want on the show, or just changes that you want to see made. And as always, we'll be back every single Monday for another episode, and you can only catch that if you subscribe to the show. See you then.